Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Busky. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Chick Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's being ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Busky, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. I'm seriously excited to bring you Helen Pluckrose this morning. Helen is an author and cultural writer and part of the Grievance Studies Trio. She has been my guiding light when navigating the world of critical social justice, and I can't wait to chat to her about her body of work and how things have evolved in recent years. I then welcome back my education expert, Kelly Valudos from the ARC Education. Today we'll be talking about a survey she completed on homeschooling with some surprising results, along with options for homeschooling if you're thinking of checking out of the system. Marty will be back for Media Matters and we'll talk about the week on the campaign trail and then I'll finish things off with Woke News of the Week. Time now to dive into the mailbag to catch up with some of your feedback and we've had a huge amount of feedback this week uh, from Ted. Thanks very much for the reply to my inquiry. I listened to this program and he's referring to Josh Slocum and yes, I think this was the discussion referred to. I'm a retired former clinical psychologist and I found this to be very intellectually sharp, accurate and riveting. I will follow Josh on YouTube. Thanks again. And that is in regards to the Josh Slocum interview. I did several weeks now and we've had a tremendous amount of feedback on that interview. Josh is the host of the Disaffected podcast. I really do suggest that you do take a listen to that. So whilst you may not know the name Josh Slocum, his information about people with personality disorders and how they crop up in places, particularly in industry governance and within our current woke culture, I think you will find absolutely fascinating. This is from Bobby regarding the Holocaust comment. It didn't start with gas chambers. It started with one political party controlling the media, one party controlling the message, one party deciding what is truth, one party censuring speech and silencing opposition, 
one party dividing citizens into us and them and calling on their supporters to harass them. It started when good people turned a blind eye and let it happen. That is so true, Bobby. This is from Aroha. Marty, I completely agree with you that we have have got to keep talking and sharing news that's absent from mainstream media. But there are difficulties. We did not get vaccinated and we did our very best to wake family and friends to its dangers based on hard data. We were vilified as anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists and were told by some family members to stop spamming them, which has effectively meant that they've blocked any emails from us. Neither of us have social media presence, so email is our only avenue, along with sending links to websites. Trying to talk to people leads to block to a blind coming down in their eyes and completely turning off. And now, of course, there's that everything goes back to normal, so what's your problem mean? How do you talk to somebody who is completely captured by mass psychosis? Aroha, that is a great question. And I think it's those small, those little courageous conversations. And it's actually looking at other issues that crop up um, particularly now that we're in the middle of a election campaign, that crop up and actually sort of filter back. So it's baby steps. It's actually sort of building a funnel back to all roads lead to the bigger and wider issues. The transgender debate is a really, really interesting one in education and gender education in schools. That has been an issue that I have had people that I know in my life who have been incredibly fervent about COVID measures and pro-vaccine and pro all of the measures that we had around COVID and the pandemic, who have come to me and said, what's going on with education and schools? Where did all of this come from? I don't understand. Of course, all of it is wrapped up it's all a mass psychosis on top of a mass psychosis within a mass psychosis. So it's they're all interlinked and they're all interwoven. And it's about having those initial conversations about things. So you, if that's something that you know a little bit about, you can talk about that. It might be something economic. It might be around how can we afford this or why is this currently happening in our health system or whatever it may be. But by having those courageous conversations first and starting to build a path brick by brick, cobble by cobble, that's when those conversations start happening. Because for these people who have had that blind pulled over their eyes, as you've mentioned, it will t- you need to just lift it ever so slightly. Could even just be a chat over coffee or just you drop a little thing in, particularly if they're complaining about something that's going on in society at the moment. You'll generally find that there is an ideological link uh, back to all of it. And the COVID measures that we've had in this country certainly link back to all of that overarching framing of bigger picture ideologies. So see how you get on and uh, report back and let us know, Aroha. This one is from Jan. Holy moly, only partway through counterculture and my head is spinning. I've learned so much this morning. Love Paul's show too. Lots of good info being shared. Above all, I love all your work and your switched on hosts and guests give me hope as we crawl out of this hole the world is now in. Thanks to you again. Cheers, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Thank you so much for the feedback on Animal Farm. It has been such a joy to get it. I'm really enjoying writing it. It does write itself. So those are great shareables. If you are able to share those things on Animal Farm, that would be hugely appreciated. Uh, lastly, this one from Marion. I so enjoyed your unfettered common sense from you and your wonderful guests on Counterculture Marie. Your underlying love of humanity comes across loud and clear with Dylandy Walt Heyer being great examples of courageous and caring humans. A big thanks. Thanks, Marion. 
Oh, so much great feedback. Remember, if you want to send us feedback, inbox at realitycheck.radio, or that text number is 2057. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. And it appears that memories are failing on the farm. It is full campaign mode on Aotearoa Farm. The farmhouse meeting room has been closed after a late night and then miraculously more rules appeared on the back and the side of the barn. All the pigs are now busily visiting paddocks and pastures, barns and sheds across the length and breadth of the farm. And it's not just the pigs who are campaigning. The chickens are now in the race and they appear to pop up suddenly to chant, cluck and cackle their displeasure of the current state of affairs, much to the displeasure of our chippy pork and oinky lux. This isn't the only issue that our chipster has on his plate. The vet sheds have been under pressure the entire tenure of the pigs and this week the senior healers that hadn't already fled for the West Farm for better feed and conditions have finally had enough and are trotting off the job. Things have always been pressured in the vet sheds. However, those remaining are now stressed beyond breaking as the wave of sickness has now gone from tidal to tsunami, even after the massive drenching campaign. The drenching campaign, which was led by Napoleon, with the wee chippy by her side every step of the way. Aotearoa Farm was the herd of 5,000 and we all needed to work together to protect our most vulnerable. And whilst drenching wasn't compulsory, banishment to the back paddocks became the only option for many, especially the chickens. The back paddocks, however, not only were a settlement for the feathered flock, but as each week passed in the drenching campaign, more and more farm animals arrived seeking sanctuary. The drench had made them sick, but we do not talk of such things in the central farmyard. Even the more frequent comings and goings of the meat wagons under the cover of darkness is explained away by the pigs as perfectly normal and don't listen to the rambling disinformation coming from the back paddocks. Of course, a message dutifully relayed and reinforced by the compliant fat sheep drunk on excessive feed from squealers then abundant food stores. For the pigs, the drenching campaign was a massive success, and the page of that chapter of Aotearoa farm history is closed. But Winnie Ben is writing his own epilogue. The wily old donkey has always had a penchant for poultry, and even came to support them when they occupied the farmyard in protest a few years earlier. He has been successfully reviving his campaign in the back paddocks and had promised all those dismissed with disdain and forgotten a voice and he even promised more feed. But I suspect he's unaware of the sorry state of Squealer's stores. Winnie's growing popularity is deeply shameful for all the other pigs who were fully complicit in the drenching campaign. They have kept a good many of the animals content in the knowledge that they had their best interests at heart and their compliance to protect all of the farm was a worthy cause. The drench was safe. No harm will come to you. In fact, feel free to have more drench. It's free. 
Chippy Pork decided he needed to deflect from the sorry state and at his official campaign launch in the central farmyard, after he fought his way through a particularly large cluster of clickers, he unveiled his master plan for the health of Aotearoa Farm. The teeth of the farm will be cared for for free. What? Obviously, the chipster missed the free-range pigs announcement of something almost identical several weeks earlier. No matter. Chippy also took the time to reinforce his message that no farm animal was forced to be drenched. Drenching was their choice and their choice alone. Oh dear, I sense Hedwood's afoot. Who is going to break it to our chipster that the chickens don't have teeth? Make sure you follow the episodes of Aotearoa Farm exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Good morning and you are with Counterculture here with Marie on Reality Check Radio and it's with great privilege I introduce to you Helen Plakrose, political and cultural writer and tea connoisseur. Good morning Helen, how are you? I'm very well, thank you Marie. Thank you for having me on. Oh, oh, she, oh, and she's got her cuppa as well. Excellent. I've actually got, got my cuppa too. It is so great to have you on. I spoke to Mike Nania several weeks ago, who is the maker of The Reformers, of which you featured, and I did say to him, I would dearly love to talk to Helen. How on earth did a lovely lady like you get tied up with a couple of cheeky scallywags like, like Lindsay and Bogosian? <laughs> well, when I started writing... Uh, at about the same time, I, I was I was part of the new atheist movement. I, I was very critical of religion, and I was studying late medieval Christianity, and it was evidence based epistemology. How do we know what is true? I, I think it's empirical evidence is is very much my thing, and consistently liberal ethics. You know, keeping um, treating everybody as an individual. I was critical of religion on those grounds. And then as this, as the new atheist mo- moment passed and the the postmodern moment began, I, I, I was studying postmodernism at university and at the same time my feminism was being overtaken by it. So I started writing more and more about that. When Jim and, and Peter began their project first of all I was red flag catcher I, I was just to read things through and and pick out things that would would be spotted as not theoretically accurate and then I got a larger and larger role in, um, in the writing process and fully joined in with the silliness. Mike made it appear there was a certain element of fun there when you look back at it now because it's five six five years ago it was did you enjoy it was it did did you have fun as well as creating something or was it real fly by your city pants stuff? I have a confession. I really like postmodernism. It's absolute nonsense, but it's so much fun to play with. And I can't do do that openly and straightforwardly because it's nonsense. So being able to play with it, make it do all kinds of weird and horrible things and argue things that clearly aren't true was fun. I enjoy getting into the theory. It was quite a lot of, of hard work as well because we, we had to go into considerable contortions to make certain things work with the theory but yeah it, it was um it was an interesting project peter was as responsible for a lot of the the silliness 
I'm sort of responsible for a lot of the theoretical detail and, and Jim brought things together. He's the, the systemizer and also renowned scholar on men and masculinities. One of the things that I found really intriguing, and I should say to Mike, creating that body of work, and it's only been released now, what are the changes that you've seen in that period of time? Because from a cultural perspective, from a layperson looking at it from this part of the world, I just started becoming aware of those things at that time. And I've seen it gone from fringe in 2017, 2018 to completely mainstreamed. Is that an observation you've had? It seems to have it happened in different times in, in different countries. So we traced the sort of mainstreaming of it to about 2010. That that was when we started seeing in the US particularly a lot of these ideas becoming more culturally accepted in institutions. It sped up a great deal at in 2015 which is when we really just um, started writing about it and that was when that was the big topic of discussion and 2020 of course the death of George Floyd that was the light touch paper moment when when everything exploded but I found with work with writing with counterweight with working with counterweight that People are at different stages of it, depending on where they are. And so it seemed to me New Zealand stayed a little bit clear of it for a little bit longer than than the UK. It seemed to be America was hit first, then Canada and the UK at about the same time. And then Australia and New Zealand were at the forefront. And then we had France, Germany, the Netherlands. And I'm still hearing from people all over Europe, it's just hitting now, writing to me saying, what the hell is this? So it, it's kind of doing it spread outwards from the US. Why do you think it's something so prevalent in the Western canon? I think because we have a significant amount of cultural guilt. So we are the people who, who have developed liberal democracies at a time when we have to look back at our past and the things we've done. The, the, the British Empire, slavery, colonialism, settler colonialism, the, these are real things that, that happened that caused real suffering. Now, rather than address these issues in a liberal way and say we can't change history, we can address the, the aftermath of things that have happened, what has lingered on is a sense of, of post-colonial guilt, and post-racial guilt, which makes a certain subset of, of us just really want to keep repairing the past, but doing so in really counterproductive ways. When it's the critical social justice, that, that I mean, there are very productive ways that we can redress past imbalances. So, for example, in, in the US, the descendants of enslaved Africans are still financially disadvantaged because their ancestors have only been allowed to be financially successful for two generations. So that is something that can, can be addressed by looking at educational opportunities in, in those areas. These are materialist, empirical ways of addressing imbalances, but 
when we start getting the postmodern thing where, where you know that there's certain knowledges that black people have and certain knowledges that trans people have and all this power is about how we talk about things so we have to focus on talking about things in the right way not only does it not really help anything nor does it represent the the views of the majority of the people it's supposed to help but it, it gets in the way of doing anything practical mm. so you mentioned that in terms of ways of knowing so from that postmodernism theory though so they're claiming that if you're one of these minority or oppressed classes that you have a special way of knowing something so therefore that needs to be elevated in order to create equity amongst that class what i find really interesting with that is that here in new zealand we have a thing called te ao maori which is the maori way of knowing or te mataranga maori they have now taken that maori way of knowing and maori science and they've now embedded that into New Zealand children's science curriculum. Yes. So where do you draw the line in terms of these ways of knowing? Don't all individuals in a liberal society has a, have a way of knowing? And shouldn't all of that be equally as recognised as the person next to them? Um, well, no. I, I, I think when it comes to establishing what is true, the correspondence model of truth, as they put it, that something is true if it corresponds with reality. So when you start bringing in indigenous or religious um, cultural myth into science, then you're going to do science badly. So I, I was following the case particularly of Garth Cooper in New Zealand, and he, such an eminent scientist, I think he has 40 patents now he's he's just been ab- absolutely re- remarkable in the the progress that he's made in in treating serious illness and he is of maori background and he's now to be told this is not his way of knowing and that he has a different way and here in the uk it it is particularly insulting when this is told to people who are of south asian or african descent that you know science is a white western way of knowing well no it isn't go back uh, history have a look and see what was happening in the um, medieval period christendom was chaos to be honest the the islamic world was doing the, the best that it science belongs to everybody and people do cultural myths cultural stories are very very important to people certainly bring them in the to the richness of historical study of literary study do not put them on the level of science unless they are they can correspond with reality and don't insult maori or indian or any kind of anybody who is not a westerner by telling them that that science is not their way of knowing it's it's a recreation of that old colonialist way of thinking that the white western man is the the purveyor of reason and, and knowledge and everybody else is perhaps a noble savage who can be you know um, dictated to or or indulged in their stories it's it's patronizing and it's it's wrong you've just answered one of the questions that i have because for me as an observation i've always felt that a lot of those who were really strong critical social justice and they would throw out the bumper stickers things like do the reading or stay in your lane or do the work and they would try and line everybody up to fit into the boxes that they want and particularly when they were doing that to Māori, 
to me as an observer, now I'm quarter Māori, so I uh, have lived in both worlds within my family, and it was never this is more Māori or this is more Pākehā. It was just our family. It was just part of the milieu and the fabric of who we were. We didn't divide ourselves out into one race or another. We just saw ourselves as a family, as you should, who had traditions that may have been drawn from different cultural pasts, like every family. And I would see that and think to myself, gosh, it almost feels like colonialism 2.0, but woe betide if you ever mentioned that to them. You would get into a lot of issue. Classic liberalism, though, the, the, the liberal foundation of discussion and debate, can that survive this period of time? I certainly hope it can, and I think it it will ultimately because it's just too useful. We've had that period now where we have learned that allowing people to speak, allowing people to experiment has produced advanced scientific knowledge and human rights. So I think that there are always going to be people who are fighting for this. For most of our history, we have done, gone down the normal route of having one group who had all the power, who told everybody else what to think and what to say. And it, and we still have this in other parts of the world. And it, it just doesn't work as well as nations which have operated as liberal democracies and have allowed people to have a range of ideas, to express them, to explore them. It's just too useful. So I disagree with the pessimists who are post-liberal, who think that liberal democracies have, have had their moment that they're going to die out. And maybe that's partly wishful thinking, because I don't want to go back to this anti-scientific <laughs> anti-liberal time where people have to pretend to believe what they're told to believe and die in childbirth but mm. I, I don't think that's that that's realistically going to happen because I think too many of us are liberal at heart even if we're impatient with what we're seeing right now and we're feeling we need something more radical I think most people are still standing for freedom of inquiry freedom of belief freedom of speech and for treating people as individuals because people are individuals and it's very difficult not to notice that if you mix with a great number of them. Mm. I think as we go further and further beyond the pandemic era where we were told that we needed to relinquish our individualism in order to benefit the collective, which is essentially what happened for all those years everywhere, particularly in Western environs, that we then start rediscovering that individualism again. That's part of that pandemic hangover. I mean, you're in Europe. You are seeing governments change now from nominally centre-left, more leftward-leaning governments, to now swinging back in the other direction. Do you worry that things could swing back too far in the other direction, which then again means sort of same shit, different day? Yes, uh, th this is the big worry. Something is going to push back critical social justice and um, my fear has always been that it will be the populist right rather than the the liberals and, and by liberals I, I mean everybody who supports that that universalist individual approach so liberals on the right liberals on the left that is something that we're seeing now we're seeing a rise of ethno-nationalist ideas of white identity politics and I mean, we've always had white identity politics, that's the original racism, but we're now seeing a kind of reactive 
white identity politics, which is responding to the identity politics of the critical social justice movement. We humans, we, we have this tendency towards reciprocity, which can work so well to make us a cooperative species. And it can also really inspire our sort of our sense of vengeance and, and tit for tat. And well, if you behave like this, then I'm going to behave like this and justifying things. And I'm, I'm seeing a lot of arguments now on Twitter. I don't know if um, you saw a wonderful essay by Adam Coleman. Um, I, I, Adam, Adam was my very first interview on the show. <laughs> he well, is he, wonderful. <laughs> he's a little more conservative than me, I think, but he he just absolutely nailed the problem with the rising a sort of white identity politics, the the trying to push back. You know, if the, if we have people who are saying everything is racist, then there's a tendency for another group to rise up and say nothing is racist. In reality, some things are racist. So trying to keep that balance, that nuanced evidence-based position where we're not knee-jerk reacting against certain ideologies that we perceive other people to be having but trying to look at reality as it actually is is really essential right now but it's so much more difficult than simply taking a a side and arguing for it and that's how we see the polarization grow. Mm. Yeah we're certain I mean I've certainly seen that with I've got a lot of friends in the uh, homosexual gay community and for years they had complete integration like they weren't perceived for their homosexuality they were just Joe blogs like everybody else. Now, all of a sudden, they're told that that is something that needs to be at the forefront, almost ahead of them. And they're thinking, well, hold on a minute here. No, it's not. And it's, it, yeah, you're right. I do worry about that pushback too far back to the, to the other side. It's like the Overton window has moved so much. Well, how, how do you reclaim the middle? And what is the middle? I, I think the, the example you used where think things just advanced so much that that gay um lesbian people d- didn't have to put that at the foreground of their identity now and that it was this ridiculous um essay came out recently um homo normativity killed the radical queer um it's this idea <laughs> that to be um, homo normative it, it's just to be a, a gay person who fits into society and t- this is is frowned upon because you're supposed to take on your sexuality as a political identity an increasing number of gay men and there's been saying well it isn't i'm just romantically and sexually attracted to people of the same sex i don't want to make this a political identity and then we hear nonsense like uh, pete Buttigieg not being really gay because um, he didn't have the right ideas and Nicole Hannah-Jones saying um, that something you can be I think it was racially black but not politically black not really black and when we, we, we recently had a ridiculous argument when the Chancellor of the Exchequer Quasi Porteng was destroying the economy about whether he was authentically black enough or not can we look at what he's doing to the economy, please? <laughs> yeah. So, yes, yeah, so we, we get this situation and it, it is quite difficult for gay men at the moment who very commonly don't want to politicise their, their identity. They're quite happy 
now that they can refer to their husband, they can go to events uh, with their partner. Nobody really bats an eye. And then lesbians have got the additional uh, problem of um, having often having to prove that they are not a turf. Yeah. Before they can get anywhere. And and the feedback that I'm getting from gays and lesbians too is that they're now starting to see people are cautious around them because their instant assumption is is that they're part of this radical social justice movement. And so many of them aren't. I mean, there is certainly a divorce I'm seeing uh, between, you know, the LGBs and the TQI plus alphabet brigade. And it worries me that all the decades of work and growth as societies are going to be undone through this critical social justice movement. Yes, and I mean we're we're seeing that, and I I think yeah, gay men, lesbians are particularly vulnerable at the moment. When I wrote um, the essay, identity politics does not continue the work of the civil rights movement. I I like many others predicted that we're going to push back the progress that we've made, and you see a lot now on on social media a lot of silliness, sometimes from gay men themselves saying, I would never have supported same-sex marriage if I knew it was going to result in this. Well, mm. clearly it didn't. Uh, you know, th- this is that the liberal project is essentially, it says society is essentially good, but it's not in including enough people in the benefits it has to offer. So when marriage was expanded to include same-sex couples, that was a liberal endeavour. We're including more people in that, like we included women in the right to vote, like we included black people in the right to attend all kinds of universities, join professions. We're becoming more liberal by including more people within a structure that is essentially good. That the critical social justice approach wants to revolutionize that liberal order and say that it it wasn't good in the first place. So we are now seeing quite a lot of of gay men and and lesbians being suspected of being politically queer, which really means taking on a non-standard sexuality or gender identity in order to politically subvert concepts of masculine and feminine, gay and straight. And the vast majority of people aren't doing that. And this extends to trans people as well. The vast majority of trans people don't want to go around subverting norms of of gender identity. They just want to live their lives. And, And I, like you, am worried about growing homophobia Again, a feeling that there's some kind of slippery slope that we should not have allowed homosexuality to become socially acceptable in the first place. And how this is going to affect gay couples, their their right to marry, their, their right to adopt is, is a very worrying phenomenon at the moment. Mm, it is concerning. You mentioned before around uh, your exchequer and the financial situation. Now here, financially here at the moment, the country is in dire straits. We were only one place ahead of Equatorial Guinea, the OECD, in terms of our growth. It is pretty bad. I've often seen that these ideologies can only flourish in an environment of affluence. So what do you think an economic downturn or an economic squeeze will do to help potentially wake those sleepy people in up in the middle who've 
go along to get along, don't push back against this ideology, and by not pushing back against it, particularly in places like the workplace or within education or in other institutions that they interact with, they're then enabling that to continue. How do you think an economic crisis perhaps will help swing things back the other way and get some normalisation going on? But I think that's a, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure it's one that I'm I'm qualified to answer. I I think yes, we we certainly see um, a correlation between uh, wealthy institutions and wealthy countries and wokeness. So the universities, which are are having the biggest problem with intolerance of a variety of ideas, are usually in the US the the Ivy League ones, while the community colleges are just in getting on with things and and we we don't see uh, wokeness becoming a huge problem in the less wealthy countries so potentially yes it if we were to return to a state of a sort of existential when we th- those existential survival values came to the fore then then perhaps people would grow tired of of the whole wokeness project I think people already are to a certain extent. In the UK, I, I think we have peaked and I think we are coming down the other side now. So I, I'm hopeful about that. But I, I have often wondered what could push this back. And when COVID came, first of all, I thought perhaps this, this one thing where we are all uh, equally threatened by a potential virus that we don't know the consequences of perhaps now we will set aside divisions of race, sex, sexuality, and kind of pull together. Uh, no, um, immediately we we had opinion pieces on men dying in greater numbers, women most affected, and people of of color most affected by by this uh, due to systemic racism. Uh, just it will take a lot for people to learn to stop reading everything through these invisible power systems of identity-based white white supremacy, patriarchy, transphobia, homophobia. But I think we are running out of patience with these people. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing for a lot of everyday folk uh, that necessarily haven't gone through the academy, so they don't haven't been exposed to that education. They're trades-based, they're going along to get along. For a number of them, that social contract has now been broken particularly in this country, because we've had essentially six years of governance where they have been steeped in the six ways to Sundays. So it, it will be intriguing. We go to the polls very soon. So it is looking like that we will see a change. But it is intriguing to know how it will sort of manifest. For us with the pandemic, what we saw was exactly that, that, that raised uh, Māori are being greatly more affected or at risk through to the, the, the pandemic than others. So uh, more resources and money and, and things were thrown at uh, supporting those groups, which I don't actually have a problem with, but I'm all about outcomes. Yeah. So throwing money at a problem with a racial justification is fine if a positive outcome is actually achieved. But it's like what you were saying before with the economy, what we had was excessive amounts of money spent for almost zero outcome. So then that creates a resentment because you've got others who are desperately in need and were created a lower priority on the basis of race. And so 
we've now seen a, a widening again of race relations in this country, this division that has been driven. And the pandemic was was part of that problem, as well as other, I won't bore you with the details in terms of other governmental policy around land and water and rights and use. It's it's pretty extensive. Dehumanisation, though, of those groups, if you're in the out group, we have also seen a lot of dehumanisation here. For example, with the pandemic, if you were someone that spoke out against the pandemic, regardless of how credentialed you were, and we had some very heavily credentialed people here who were putting their hands up saying, well, actually, is there a plan B? Could we discuss alternatives? Is there a way that we can do this that will work? You know, we are islands, so therefore we have a natural upgrade to other parts of the world. How do we take that benefit to protect ourselves in this country? And they were roundly shouted down or at worst excommunicated from polite society for a lack of a better term. And then we divided the citizenry again through vaccination. And that today still continues. How do we recover from that, do you think? The problem at the moment is people are arguing a number of things in clusters that really don't go together. So because I am critical of the critical social justice, the woke approach, I am often assumed to also be in favour of um, leaving the European Union, um, being sceptical of vaccines and sceptical of climate change. And this all seems to come under a, a clump of feeling that the, the government is making overarching <laughs> rules for everybody that are oppressive, that are constraining them. And I can see that, but I think we need to separate those things out because when we're looking at what is true, there's going to be different answers. It makes no sense to say because the critical approaches to race don't work, therefore climate change isn't real. And this is, I know it sounds ridiculous, but this is, is the kind of mentality that we're seeing here. One of our clients was a climate scientist and he wanted to work on more energy efficient a provision for Indigenous communities in New Zealand. And he found himself in trouble for saying that um, he had not faced any racism or Islamophobia since arriving in the country. He, he, he was from the Middle East. And this got in the way of him actually doing some practical, proactive work. So um, he needed to suffer oppression in order yeah. to be able to continue his work in science. Yeah. It's yes, utterly ridiculous. Uh, needed to, to get on board. And so I, I had to, to work with him because he wasn't going to pretend that he had not been welcomed by New Zealanders, that he'd had any racism at all. But he, he also wanted to do his job. And so we had to try and coach him into how to talk about this without hitting any of those minefields. And I think that is the way forward is to decrease the number of minefields just just work on that if we have scientists who disagree about the best way to contain a virus it's not my area of expertise so i can't speak too much on that then yes bring them into a, a conversation together i did not for example think that the idea of joe rogan's uh, to have kennedy and uh, dr 
uh, hoties. Yeah, yes, uh, t- together in a, in a debate situation was really a very good one to work because Kennedy is a politician. He's used to quick fire questions and verbal spin. And Hotez was a is a scientist. He's going to need to unpick things gradually. But mm. this is what the academy is meant to be for. If we have scientists who disagree on how to balance containing a virus, re- reducing the transmission of it without damaging people's mental health, health, livelihood, and general lives, then yet we need to keep focusing on this whole concept of bringing ideas together, this very Mm. liberal idea of the marketplace of ideas. And Mm. I I know it's old-fashioned. People think it's naive. It's just, um, um, we need more than ideas. We need action. But before we can take any action, we need to convince enough people that they have to take that action. And by for doing that, we need to explain our ideas and convince them. But then that's that cycled us back to the academy because, I mean, this all sort of started there. And from what you're saying, it probably needs to finish there. But how can it do that when those who have those discussions that are able to spark that debate and spin things around. So the example I gave to you of the person who is very well credentialed is at Auckland University and is holding onto their job by the skin of their teeth and has had to self-censor themselves to a point in order to maintain employment and they don't know how long they're going to stay. Now, that to me is a tragedy. And then you look at people like Peter who was a firebrand in the university. If you get an opportunity, listeners, to have a look at, um, there are still some of Pete's lectures, and I think there were a few that um, that Mike may have popped up on his reformers page that he had done with some of his students. You know, he's encouraging these minds to actually think about a different alternative or, or critically think and actually help them bounce ideas around. Well, if that is disappearing, how do we... How do we get it back? How, if those people who challenge those ideas within what is now the norm are shouted out, the Bretts and the Heathers and the and the Peters and now the Petersons, how do we allow those people to thrive back in academia with this level of censorship? Or is it an impossible thought right now? I do not know the answer to fixing academia. I'm afraid. I is that a, is that a whole nother hour, Helen? <laughs> yes, we are seeing. As, as culture, you know, they, they say politics is, is downstream of culture. Academia is a reflection of culture as well. So there's a kind of feedback loop going on between what's coming from the universities that's going through cultural norms, that's then going into politics. And from my perspective, because I argue for ideas and how we should think about things and how we should understand our rights as free agents to think and believe and speak and live freely. My contribution to this is trying to inspire more people to say confidently, I don't believe what you believe and I don't have to. If we can get more people standing up and saying this at the same time, we will push this back. But it how how to do it immediately, how to save your friend right now, mm-hmm. I don't know. There, there are many casualties and this isn't going to be a quick process. I think we, we have to change the cultural zeitgeist. We have to get people absolutely sick of being told what they may think and may say 
And that's not an easy thing. Sometimes people seem to think, well, we just need to defund the universities and set up these alternative things. And But if culture hasn't changed, we're going to come up against the same problems. It's going to be different people deciding who may say which, who may say what. And what we need to do is try to inspire in people a greater respect for for tolerance of different ideas, for understanding the value of bringing them together and arguing them out. So you mentioned before this client that you had done here. So what sort of work are you doing now? Are you actually helping people that get into these sort of situations navigate through them internationally? Is that the sort of work you're doing? Yeah, I have a few situations like that. So people will come to me right when I was running counterweight we had about a hundred people a month now I'm I'm just involved with with a few individuals and with a couple of institutions I have a religious institution and a large human rights charity who are having a problem at the moment so I'm I'm trying to help them rewrite their policies so that they can bring this more in line with freedom of belief. We oppose racism, sexism, homophobia, any kind of discrimination against anybody on the grounds of their immutable characteristics, but there is no specific way from which you have to do this. You can do this because you are a liberal and you think everybody is an individual. You can you can be a Christian and think everybody is is the son is a, is a child of God and deserves equal respect. You can come from any perspective you want. For workplaces, a simple rule: don't be racist, don't be sexist, mm. don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Don't be a dick, but hold your own values. So I'm I am doing a bit of that. Certainly, I'm finishing my book, which is a guide to dealing with this in the workplace. It has template letters. It has a guide as to how to recognise what level of a problem you have, because unfortunately, we've seen some people see words like diversity, equity and inclusion and go into full on panic mode and over and and charge in when actually the problem that they were imagining wasn't actually there. So trying to make sure that you're understanding and responding proportionately, then understanding how these ideas work, what the common speaking points are, uh, how to respond to them. This kind of very practical broken down guide because most of the people that I was talking to and and, um, and working with were, were blue and white collar workers they're not academics you know that they, they don't know the difference between decolonization and diversification it it needs to be much more bringing it down to a simple level which is yes I am behind any policy against discrimination no I do not agree to pretend to believe in these particular Mm. theories. Yeah, I know that sounds like fantastic work. And I think you're right. Sometimes these journeys do take a single step. I'm a firm believer, actually, it's the next generation. I look at my sons and their friends. So they're all teens and I have a slew of teenagers through this house every week. And I listen to their conversations and it gives me hope. 
So I'm really quietly hopeful that this big ship will turn around and we will get just a little bit more balance back. Uh, I also, too, got introduced to Helen originally, as well as her work with the Grievance Studies Affair, was actually the, the book that kind of came out of that, really, which with you and James, which is called Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody. If you don't have a copy of this, I do suggest that you get it. For me, this really helped explain the differences between all the different theories in terms of Marxism, postmodernism, and all of the neoliberalism and everything else and where it all fit together. And and if I sort of sum this book up, it would be that Mark Twain quote, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And this told me a lot of the original tunes that were being played and helped me put things into context for where we were today. So thank you, Helen. It was and your reading of it, I listened to it in audio, it was excellent. So yeah. I, th- I thoroughly you. enjoyed it. You, you you're very so soothing. Fun. People keep saying this to me. I I, um, I haven't considered myself a, a soothing person, a bit more of a termagant, to be honest. But um, people are saying this, and it's quite nice. <laughs> it's wonderful. And if people want to follow you, they've listened to this, and they thought, gosh, I didn't know about Helen. Where do I find her? Where are you most active? Uh, I have a Substack which I'm um, just starting up again. I've been unwell for a while, and that, that you can just find that Helen Helen Pluckrose Substack, and it's called The Overflowings of a Liberal Brain. I'm too active on Twitter under H Pluckrose. The book that you just mentioned, some people found it a little bit too theoretically dense, and so there is a there's a young adult version of it called Social Injustice that was adapted by a young adult writer Rebecca Christensen. We're finding that it's mostly being bought by adults who wanted a bit more of a, a, an easy approach. In I mean, cynical theories should be accessible to everybody, but you you might have to read it a couple of times if mm. if you're ground is something completely different so social injustice might be better for perhaps younger viewers or people with no background at all in that as a lay person as I said to you before we got started when I came into this because I'm an old farm girl old classic common sense was drilled into me and of course this is the complete antithesis of common sense so trying to get your head around it yeah can be a challenge Well, Helen, thank you very much for your time this morning. It has been greatly appreciated. This is Helen Blackrose. Don't disappear, though. We've still got more great content here on Cowder Culture. And thank you so much, Helen. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Marie. It was nice to talk to you. Remember, if you're wanting to find out more about The Reformers, the documentary following the Grievance Studies Affair featuring Helen, make sure you check out my interview with Mike Nainer, the filmmaker and director. Just go to realitycheck.radio backslash replays, click on my counterculture icon, and you can download or listen there. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand, with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. You're here with Marie and this morning I welcome back my educational guru, Kelly Veludos from the ARC Education. How are you, Kelly? 
I'm fine, thank you. I'm just laughing at the educational guru. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are. This is, this is, you're, a, you're a frequent flyer here on Counterculture. And I love it because you, there is such a wealth of information. And one of the topics that we keep parking after the last two conversations has been homeschooling. And yes. feedback has come back asking around homeschooling. Homeschooling, I know, is a passion of yours. It's a core of the ARC education. So... Tell me about a survey that you have done recently and what have been some of the things and observations with this explosion of homeschooling we've seen in recent years? Absolutely. Um, I sent out the survey um, just as a general look at why homeschooling has exploded in the last two years and and to see if, if in fact that is true. It was incredibly interesting. You know, usually you send out a survey and you're lucky to get 10 replies. I got 23 replies within the first hour and we've got over 70 in the end, um, which was really, really quite big response for not a very long time. It's been an interesting survey, to be honest. Part of the survey was to see when people had started homeschooling or unschooling. 40.5% have started in the last year, oh, sorry, two years, and 10.8% have started in the last year. Yeah, so that's massive. That's over 50% who have come into homeschooling or unschooling in the last couple of years. Well, I mean, wasn't the number, was it 2020, 2020 to 2021, something like a 400% increase yeah. in homeschooling numbers? I mean, look, off a small base, I understand, but that just shows you how many parents are dissatisfied and disillusioned with the current situation. Yeah, and the system. So what are the main drivers for those parents to pull their kids out of the state system and start teaching from home? So it was really, really, it's been really, really interesting to see what those main drivers are. Just, um, I thought what was really interesting as well is that there were 11 trained teachers who have pulled their, t- their kids out in just in this little sample. So these teachers who are realizing that the system isn't, isn't right for the, for kids, but there's a really strong trend to show that there's a enormous lack of trust in the public education system. There's a lot of thinking around indoctrination. 50 people out of the 74 that did the survey put five for, I feel that the current system is indoctrinating our children. So there's a definite mistrust and worry about how our kids are being indoctrinated at school. Whether that's true or not, that is the perceived truth, or that's the perceived idea about what's happening. Most thought that school had become a a redundant institution. The current curriculum, over half, in fact, two-thirds of the survey respondents believe that the curriculum changes have been inappropriate. Many, 61, 
had five and five had four, which they were uncomfortable with the ideology of gender, sexuality and politics being promoted in school. So these are that that is a huge factor, deciding factor. Many of them didn't feel that their kids were safe at school. Funny enough, their kids didn't think that they were they were unsafe, but they felt <laughs> their kids mm. were unsafe. The majority of the respondents, actually half of the respondents, or just over half, um, didn't have any religious convictions. So it wasn't it wasn't that the fact that they're Christian or whatever other religion that that they were finding it difficult for their children. Mm. That's, um, that's actually a really interesting number because uh, we know that the particularly the modern Christian church has been quite, and even actually the more traditionals too, have been very instrumental and have been very strong in the space. I mean, I've said it many times before, my boys are mm. with the Catholics, uh, <laughs> and the Catholics are probably the oldest religious group who have mm -hmm. been working in with education. education. And unlike uh, other traditional integrated, state-integrated schools with special character, the Catholic, yeah. it is the boys go to mass, it is actually, there yeah. is no escaping the fact that you are at a Catholic school. Yeah, yeah, sure. yeah absolutely. Um, and my boys are in the minority as non-Catholics there. It is restricted, you know, they have a certain number of non-preferential mm. places, but mm. it is, you know, very much so. However, uh, there are a lot of schools that I think transitioned from that charter space interstate yeah. space who were like, for example, the Seven-day Adventists. The, Seven-day Adventists, the, yeah, the, yes. the Brethren's, I know at my day job, yeah. I've, um, there's a Brethren school, my neighbour teaches there, and lovely kids, they quite often come through and do surveys and stuff. The Brethren and, schools are actually incredible. <laughs> yeah, There's one here in, in Palmerston North that um, I have been to, and um, their spaces are ultra, ultra modern, they have a completely different way of teaching as well. It's all done very, very in a very modern paradigm shifting way, actually. It's interesting. Is, you see, yeah. Well, my neighbour, my next door neighbour, literally over the fence, she teaches at the school and she is not brethren. She's not with faith. And I no. said, how do you find that? She said it is the best teaching job she mm -hmm. has ever, ever had. had. Yes, they're incredible. I think the brethren actually. I don't think that they're state integrated. No, they're fully they're, private. They're fully private, and you can tell that. Mm. You can tell that, which is really interesting because a lot of the Steiner schools have completely lost their character since they became state integrated. Steiner used to be sort of the haven of us, and I put this in quotations, hippies. <laughs> yeah, and and I guess that's that. That is the double-edged sword, isn't it? it I know. Is. Again, Steiner was a, an option that we looked at seriously, and yeah, the challenges I think they faced again is fiscal because to be mm -hmm. fully private, there is a cost attendant to that. Yes. And with a number of the families attending, I think Steiner schools. It's a challenge, and they were really struggling. The schools were struggling uh, yes. to get people paying. I think, you know, the fee, particularly the donations, which 
to make a school like that work, you have to do, and you can't enforce those, and you know, and it's and exactly. so on and so forth. It's it is really really difficult for that funding, and I I, f- I fell for this, and you're right, I feel for the Steiner schools because I think mm-hmm. with all the best will in the world, they would still be completely independent, but but they they can't be, or they they weren't able to be, but it has definitely affected the whole Steiner ethos. Um, because they are now beholden to the state in a very real, real yeah. form. I think it's great that in that private space, and not private schools like we think of private schools, but no. um, but in that very small independent school base, yes. the modern Christianity has actually really created quite a niche there, and yeah. they're doing great work and they're providing excellent education mm. and they're mm. giving families an option. And from what I have seen and have spoken to other parents who have tried um, or have children in that space, they don't close that space off to non-Christian children, which yeah. I think yeah. is really wonderful. They're fully inclusive uh, to anyone that wants to attend. So, I, you know, that, so that is certainly an option. So that's interesting. Carry yeah. on. I, I on a tangent. <laughs> well, uh, well Kelly, actually, so- you weren't, weren't so much on a tangent because one of the questions I asked was, would you send your child to private school if you could afford it? And only three people said yes. Really? Strongly yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Which was really, really interesting. I'm not sure if that's because... Oh, sorry. Oh, two people said yes, strongly yes, and five said four, which was yeah. probably, but you know, not as strongly as as definitely. It kind of shows that perhaps number one that people think that private schools are perhaps an extension to the state schools, or are still beholden to state school or to the state. I'm not sure. Or perhaps they were thinking about it being a state-integrated school rather than private. But when I say private school, I mean something like the one school, which is the Brethren, mm. with the Brethren thing. Yeah, well, I I mean, I know here there's, there's a number of Christian schools here in, in, in the Bay, and uh, one of them, which is a year 1 to 13 school, they have a waiting list. I had two staff that were trying to get their children in there and it was mm. difficult because the places were limited whenever yeah. I talk to anybody that are in- interacts with different schools I've got a friend who worked in recruitment for this um, services for a while and I said to her she used to every year you know you do the recruitment drives and you uh, go around and talk to the kids and you do all of that and I said to her I said oh you know in terms of all the kids who are the most engaged who do you enjoy going to talk to and she's every single time she said um, Hastings Christian School every time she said yes. they were amazing yeah, it's, it is really interesting. I mean, I look at the devolution of charter schools, mm. and I think Alwyn Poole is someone that's spoken about this quite a lot. It's quite detrimental because it took away choice, parental choice, for so many. Do you, are you seeing that, or are you uh, what's having been in this space for a while? Yeah, I was a little bit confused, I guess, around the whole charter school debate in that I completely understood that having a charter school would mean that 
there wouldn't be it meant a letting go of how can I say of regulation actually um, and at the time being a teacher in the system realizing that well I thought at the time that there had to be some kind of regulation and and blah de blah de blah but actually now <laughs> I have evolved to the point where I actually think charter schools would have been a bloody good idea mm. um there's some really strongly successful examples in the US one of them being Actually, there was a film made, I think I might have mentioned it before, called Most Likely to Succeed. That was based at a charter school. You could see how their ability to do, to teach the way they wanted to teach absolutely fitted with the kids that were there. The parents at first were really afraid of whether their kids would get into college or not, and because there everything is very, very regulated, you know, qualifications are everything, much like it is here at the moment. What the interesting thing was that those kids that went to that school and actually applied to go to college, I think 98% of them actually got in with flying colors, even though they had not been taught the. <laughs> yes. College entry curriculum. Mm. So, so, your, so from your survey, how many parents indicated? I mean, you mentioned ideologies, but how many parents would have been someone like, for example, in my situation? Mm. Uh, we did a little bit of homeschooling in the initial stages with our son. It's like an ex, really an extension to his yeah. early childhood. So he didn't actually start school until he was six. So we waited. <laughs> yeah. Mm. And um, to that point, which most parents don't do, don't but do, he no. was not ready. In fact, to be honest, he really wasn't ready to be there until he was about <laughs> nine. But um, <laughs> So how many were like us that had kids that had additional needs, needs that just were not being met within the state system? So that was really, really interesting because three and upwards, uh, there were only one uh, three, four, four people who didn't agree with this, and this was my children's needs cannot be were not met at a public school. The rest all believed that their kids' needs weren't met. Mm. That's massive. Um, it's massive, absolutely massive. And the interesting thing was, and I can't read all the comments, but and I won't read them because it's also not, you know, these people mm. have done it out privately, of uh, yeah. private, uh, you know, anonymously. I would say that at least um, probably coming up to half of them said that they pulled their children out because they were neurodiverse and weren't learning at school and were being bullied. Yeah, and did you see, there was actually a, an article on the papers recently about a girl who hasn't been in school for a year. It was because of bullying and she can't, and the mother can't get her into school. She can't yeah. find a school that will take her. This kid is just losing hope. I mean, it's just shocking. It's, it is shocking. You know, I would say that many of them too, uh, more than half, were afraid of the indoctrination. A lot of them started homeschooling 
months after uh, once the mandates had been established because of masking and obviously because of vaccination policies and and the fear that their their children would be lured into being vaccinated what was really interesting marie is how because it was it was interesting in that the existing homeschooling community were fairly underrepresented in this in the survey showing that they were quite reluctant to take the survey even though it was spread out you know far and wide but those that did had a real strong resentment towards the new the new homeschoolers why do you think that is i'm not entirely sure i think for a lot of homeschoolers who were in the community before all covid and and everything sort of got exposed and brought up brought to the fore they've got a feeling of their independence or their their ability to function was hard fought they have exemptions they've got the trust the trust and i put trust in quotation in inverted commas they've got the trust of the ministry and they're feeling that all these newcomers <laughs> are just activists who are going to make the ministry mistrust the whole system and the whole community it's just a very interesting dynamic that i noticed mm. um originally the homeschooling community is quite insular mm. and very defensive of their community and the way they do things which uh, i i don't think can be blamed on anything other than the fact that they have always been seen as an alternative rather than a legitimate way of educating if that makes sense yeah you know no, uh, they've they've kind of been outliers yeah and now with all this <laughs> this influx of people going we're we're not happy with the system we're going to do this without children there's a lot of resentment i think and a lot of fear around whether they will tip the boat do you think that there is worry that they may bring some of the institutionalized thinking into what is essentially a fairly free range scenario and and i say free yeah. free range when it's actually not i mean i've interacted a bit with the homeschooling communities over the last 20 years because of my the day job I work in the mm. handcraft industry so uh, mm. handwork and those sorts of traditional crafts are really big within uh, yeah within the homeschooling network so I have inter um, interacted mm. with them I've gone and done demonstrations that they actually have their own coalesced sort of family and, and study groups and social groups to give they those do. kids the interactions they're really very well organized they are. And a lot of them work within the anthroposophical ideologies yes. anyway. They use anyway, that as a framework, yeah. but they don't they do. want to go into an organised Steiner school or it's not available yeah. or whatever the reasons may be. And a lot of them I also know work very much in what I call the traditional Western canon. So they teach yes. the fundamentals of Western and classical philosophies yes. as yes. a core. 
as a call. Yeah. It, what's interesting around this is that 83.8% of the people who who did this um, survey all have exemptions from the ministry. So that's the majority in a big way. And the, the rest are either replying and there's only one or two, literally, who have no intention of applying for an exemption. And I think that was the biggest fear amongst the existing homeschooling community was that there was a whole lot of activists who were going to come into the community and derail the whole thing because they were going to refuse to get exemptions. And that's not true by all intents and purposes with this survey. Well, that's encouraging, though. It, means it is encouraging. Because if they're going through the... So let's start people from the beginning. If someone's listening to this, they're getting... Because we're getting towards the end of the, the sticky end of the school year. Yeah. They've, uh, they're have they fed up with what's going mm-hmm. on and what they're seeing. Yes. And they're thinking, actually, I, I've got the time or I want to put this time into my kids. Yeah. How, how does the process start? You can pull your kids out and start homeschooling them. <laughs> immediately and apply and then apply for an applet for an exemption but you've got to be prepared to be facing a few truancy officers and things like that so usually what happens is and this is just from people I've spoken to who have intended to homeschool it would be a good idea to start now if you intend to homeschool your kids next year and put in an application saying why you want to homeschool and saying that you don't agree with the system isn't good enough they will not give you an exemption for that an exemption is actually quite a a convoluted process to be honest you have to demonstrate that you are capable, number one, of giving your child an education that is equal to, if not better than, a school education. And therefore, you have to put in a year plan um, and you have to put in goals and attainment markers. Attainment markers and things like Mm. that. There's not a lot of follow up from the ministry at the moment but there is some so Aero do um, randomly pick a few homeschooling families and will go in and check what they're doing and they basically represent the rest of the community so you do have to have a plan you can't just go in there thinking all right I'm just going to do whatever I like even if the plan is just for the ministry. Yeah, it's ticking the box. It's ticking the box. There are people who have said, bugger that, I don't want anything to do with the system, I don't even want to be in the system, Um, and who have pulled their kids out and are just basically battling the system. Obviously, that's people's choice. I do know of some who have subscribe to a different jurisdiction because there is a different jurisdiction in this country. <laughs> well, it's inter- yeah, and it's actually it's interesting you say that and uh, you and I know a bit more about them the most, but I think I've mentioned uh, the young man that goes to school and is friends with my young lads and he 
had that crippling anxiety and that was part mm. of the truancy and yep. the attainment attendance rather that we discussed way back at beginning yes now he's actually uh is great because Catholics that you know they spoke to him and they said right we need to find a solution and he mm-hmm. they ended up getting him via correspondence and core studies yes. to still be able to study at home but they also hooked him up through the Wananga uh, so the local iwi mm-hmm. had a setup had for a students setup for that they could yeah. take out into the Māori ju- jurisdiction and he's hooked even though he's non-Māori he's actually hooked into that so he can still study at home he's still doing all his work all there at home. but there is that oversight that umbrella from from the wananga so that's yes. another option so that, for people that is another option so uh, there is the option of going with te Kura, the correspondence school which is actually the biggest school in new zealand now there's thousands and thousands of um students who have gone with te Kura. if your child is 16 and over it is free. If not, you still have to get an exemption to be able to go to Tekura, whether sometimes they do a blended thing with kids going to school for some of the time, and but that's a dual enrollment. So when when if you do decide to go with Tekura, you actually have to enroll with them and you are, if you do it through, you know, completely if you're going to be doing school completely through them, you you get unenrolled in the school that you're at and you get enrolled with them. There is a slight cost. I think there is some cost to it there um, below 16. You do have options. You do have options. But it's not a, just a matter of pulling your kid out of school and homeschooling. You do have to think about it and plan for it and decide what tolerance you have for <laughs> for being regulated because you probably will get truancy on your doorstep if you just pull them out. If you take your child off the role of one school, you have three weeks and then the truancy officer will start coming to you saying, well, where is your school, is your child enrolled with someone else? That's the regulatory um, obligation, I guess. If you want to stand in your sovereignty and say, you know, I'm not part of the state or whatever, then that is an option. I haven't heard of anybody actually doing that yet, and it would be really interesting to hear from anyone if they have, if they've managed to stand in their sovereignty and say, get lost, (laughs) I'm doing what I want with my children. Think about plan ahead. Think about how uh, making an application because the applications are taking months, up to six months I've heard at the moment because because of the volume of them. I know that in 2020, I think before the lockdowns, they were they were um, processing about eight a month. By the end of 2021, they had application. I think they had 900 applications. Yeah, so they would never in, get through them. <laughs> in the December of 2021. 
And the other side of it too is it's not just making that decision to pull your kid out, but yeah. you've not got that that cushion yes. of dropping them off at nine o'clock and picking them up at three o'clock, and essentially Absolutely. you can work or do whatever it is that you did in that time mm. period, mm. whilst you don't necessarily need to be teaching between nine and three with your child. No. There is still a time commitment there, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. There is. I mean, there's so many advantages to homeschooling. I, I, I know that a lot of homeschool students actually can uh, have applied for university at 16 because they've had they've managed to to get the NCEA level three within that time and they do exceptionally well and that that's because of the small small numbers number one and and focused focused work you know um that some people don't agree with the curriculum at all and um don't care whether their kids get in CEA level one, two, or three, and that that's fine too. You know, I've I've heard of some amazing stories of incredibly creative entrepreneurs coming from the homeschooling community that never go to university or any of the formal institutions. And actually, that just kind of puts the nail in the coffin for me around that whole culture of qualification. You know, you've you've got to go to university or do a course and get a piece of paper to say that you're qualified for something. Actually, that's not true. It's not true. I know several teachers who are highly, highly qualified and cannot teach to save their lives or the children that they're teaching. It, it means nothing a lot of the time you know some people are just born to do things mm. some people are just born to build some people are born to teach or or those sorts of things so this kind of brings us around to this whole and um, a need for a paradigm shift in education mm. and i think with the homeschooling community or the homeschooling space these that that room to be able to shift that paradigm and allow the kids, if if you're not in that whole traditional space, but allow the kids to be exactly who they're meant to be. Yeah, and it's interesting you say shifting the paradigm. You know, in the time that I've been, you know, going the grist through the mill as, as a, yes. from a child through to an adult, there has been quite a shift educationally to mm. popping kids into this educational sausage factory and that you have to sort of reach these so-called milestones in order mm-hmm. to actually achieve anything when you come out at the other end. Mm. Now, I'm somebody who academically did very, very well at school, but I never went to yep. university. Now, it wasn't through lack of desire. It was actually through I was <laughs> right on that cusp of age where um, yeah. they flipped from free university from education free, exactly. to, to paid. And I just was from a fit. We could not afford to pay. And the whole thought of borrowing money for education for me and for my family was like, what? You know, you don't do that. So I didn't do it. Yeah. And I went down on a different pathway. Now, I do, I have done just fine. Fine, exactly. And to the point exactly. that, by, you know, in my 20s, in my mid-20s, 
I got a role that was what was a marketing graduate role. Mm. And they had been advertising for that role for ages. They couldn't find the right person. They didn't get the right fit. I put in an application that was quite left field, which was Mm. obviously what they were looking for. What they were looking for. Got the interview and they said, you know, what are your qualifications? Oh, you know, I did this at high school. And they're like, well, what about university? No, didn't do that. But I've been working a lot, you know, I've been working for years. Period. I have. Yeah. And they they took a punt on me. And, you know, from that moment onwards, tertiary education was irrelevant for any other job that I went went for. And I'm seeing that now starting to happen again. I'm seeing employers. I've spoken to friends who employ people. Mm -hmm. And one of them said, oh, if I get an application in, if I see that, you know, certain levels of um, education that they've done, it goes straight in the bin. Said I don't even entertain it. You know why? Because a lot of them, unfortunately, this is this is and and it's it's this completely systemic problem that's come from that goes from primary school all the way through to tertiary education, is that that compliance and control, that overregulated thinking, overregulated. I see it in my daughter, who's actually at university at the moment who's always been a little bit of a pariah in in the system like her mother has been um in that she's she asks questions that curly I know exactly <laughs> but really curly questions sometimes but I'm I'm noticing that at university we sometimes come to loggerheads like because I'll say to her oh well have you thought about this this and this no she'll say to me no you know it's like this this and this and I'll go well is it and I'm noticing how little curiosity and discovery that they put into our university students I went to university I was lucky enough to go to university and my university days Mind you, I did go to a very left-wing university in apartheid South Africa <laughs> at the time, so they, they were very out of the box anyway, but we were made to question. We were made to question. We were encouraged to, to go and look and find out and experience, you know, um, whereas that is not happening today. Most of lectures and things are online now. Since, you know, tertiary education became beholden to the mighty dollar, the quality of education has completely and utterly collapsed because they're beholden to the mighty dollar Mm -hmm. and they teach what they're told to teach so that they get the money. Yeah, Um, And I wonder too how much of that is the degradation of those classic liberal arts courses, you know, so now like Mr. Marie at the moment is going back and doing a new degree. So he's retraining. Yeah. Uh, now she, there's been a sort of a 30, a 35 year break between, <laughs> um, <laughs> or 30 year break since university yeah, yeah. first time round to 2.0. Yeah. So he's seeing a bit of a paradigm shift himself. I bet he is. Oh my goodness, he he most certainly is. And there are some days he comes in. Now he's studying fully remotely. He's a natural studier. Like for him, fully remote study isn't a problem at all. In fact, it's probably his preferred option. Yeah. 
honestly, every second day he will come in. He's got his little shed. I call it his little shed that he sits, <laughs> goes off to and and studies. And he and he'll come in and he'll be. He's like, oh, and he'll show me stuff. And the level of yeah, as you say, uh, lack of curiosity. Now he has mm-hmm. to be fair, starting a discipline which isn't high in curiosity, but he said it is. There are some times that it's so doctrinal. Yes. Mm-hmm. That he he said it's cringeworthy. Mm. He said there are times that he sits in different tutorials or things online, or they have questions that are asked, mm. and he said he just has to sit on his hands and not say anything because mm-hmm. he knows that every now and then he'll see a student that does, and within the forums that they'll get shouted down. And an example, I mean, this is a really simple example, but in one of the courses he did, which was quite a large course, it was an introductory course, mathematics. Yeah, wouldn't have thought it was particularly controversial. Well, so we thought, but I'm going to read something else to you in a second. One of the uh, people in the forum requested, uh, they were based at the campus, they had a campus in Auckland and said, Mm -hmm. are there any other students doing this course that would like to create a study group Mm -hmm. so we can actually work and discuss and study in person? Yeah. I would have thought that that was quite an innocent request. Yeah, very. Well, no, apparently not. That is being a, a, he was, oh, I actually don't know whether it was a he because the username was um, Uh, (laughs) non-binary. They they were told that that was being exclusionary. And yes, that was being exclusionary, that they shouldn't be able to go off and create their own separate study group because they weren't being fully inclusive to everyone in the group and not everyone is physically in the same location. So therefore, uh, they were being exclusionary and not being completely inclusive to everyone on the course and and essentially got shouted down into the forum to the point where this poor person sort of clammed up and, and didn't say anything. My husband was appalled. Oh, that is appalling. Unfortunately, that is the woke culture that we we live in at the moment. Um, the ridiculous ridiculousness of the situation is abhorrent, to be honest. We're not allowed to organize ourselves in any way, shape, or form in case we actually show them up, I think. Yeah. Well, this is this is something that has come from the curriculum for mathematics. Now, I don't know whether yeah. I, I think this is just in the general curriculum, yes. and this is a quote. So this is new. You ready? Is new. Glad you're yes. sitting down. I think you, I think you know <laughs> what I'm going to read out. Yes. A critical maths pedagogy, <laughs> yeah, pedagogical approach okay. uses maths to develop critical awareness about wider social, environmental, political, ideological, and economic issues. Critical maths recognises the importance of understanding, interpreting, and addressing issues of power, social justice, and equity in the community and the wider world. Akonga are encouraged to interrogate dominant discourses and assumptions, including that maths is benign, neutral, and culture-free. <laughs> I call bullshit. Bullshit. That. Uh, and and the and being somebody it's so that is paradoxical what, because if you listen to it, you think, oh well, actually that that's that's true. You know, you you shouldn't be learning maths just for maths. 
And that is true. But that what that's actually saying is that you should be questioning through maths. You should be questioning the, the narrative. But in actual fact, you don't question the narrative. You prove it. You, you have to prove the narrative. Yeah. It, it, it's a complete and utter paradoxical nonsense, isn't it? It is a complete nonsense, and uh, I'm actually hoping to explore these sort of concepts a little bit further. I'm interviewing very, very soon both uh, Professor Peter Bogosian and Helen Pluckrosen. This is at the heart of the things like the grievance studies affair. You've just heard this, people, and you've gone, what on earth is what? that? Yeah. I want you to look up 2 plus 2 equals 5 and James Lindsay in New Discourses. He has He's a mathematician. Mm-hmm. He has been at the forefront fighting this critical mathematics now uh, for years. And the problem is, is they're introducing this to our primary schoolers. Yes, definitely. Um, I work with a wonderful professional development practitioner, Charlotte Wilkinson, and um, she has also expressed a few misgivings about the the new curriculum there's a lot that has been infused in it that would to the naked eye so to speak would look worthy i guess but in actual fact is so underhand and so indoctrinated or indoctrinating mm. It is It is a worry. It is so, a worry. So to anyone listening today, so we've sort of covered off uh, things with <laughs> exemptions. If they need other information around homeschooling or they've already started the homeschooling, Julie, you've got some resources at the ARC Education. I do indeed. How do they um, find those? So um, if you just come on to um, the ARC Education website, which is www.thearcheducation.co.nz, and look under resources, you'll see that there is some information around exemptions under resources. I have links to two people that could possibly help you with your exemptions and with any questioning around homeschooling as as experts. One of them is um, Nikki Zanchi, who is actually my ex-partner <laughs> in crime, so to speak. Nikki has taught, homeschooled her kids. She's actually a qualified teacher, but she homeschooled her kids for 25 years. Incredibly lovely, generous, lovely lady. And, and if you do need help, she um she would possibly be somebody that you could get hold of. And the other one is Cynthia Hancox, who is our basically New Zealand's homeschooling community representative to the ministry, and she does a lot of work. There's a link to her website, which has example exemptions that you can purchase mm. off her. If you need somebody to talk to and you can't get hold of anyone, I am more than happy to have a chat with you and give you as much as advice as I can. Um, yeah, I, I really recommend that you try and connect with your local homeschooling community. 
because most most areas do have a homeschooling community. If you're finding that you're not <laughs> you're not connecting with them in in any kind of visceral way, which is which has been a little bit of a problem because of what I said before, you know that these are these are a bit of a disconnect between the old community yeah. and the, the and the new community. I would suggest that you put it out there that you're wanting to connect with new homeschoolers, develop your own communities. Mm. And, and don't be afraid to look at the Wanangas either, because I know absolutely, I, yeah, and and also have a look at Takura if if that is because you can do you can do a sort of a blended thing if you're if you're afraid of how to teach your child, Takura is a good option actually. Mm. There are options. There are options. Not that I don't want to encourage people to send their kids to school, I would really love us to be able to shift that whole schooling space into a more inclusive, dare I say it, <laughs> truly authentically inclusive space where children's needs are met. Mm. But at the moment, that is not the case. And yeah. I, I'll be the first to put my hand up and say that, even though I am teaching part-time at the moment in the school it is very obvious to me the the, the enormous holes mm. in the net yeah absolutely hey look Kelly that's this is awesome as always I've been talking to Kelly Valudos from the ARC Education and as she said, if you need some more information, www.thearcheducation.co.nz. Uh, and I always get Kelly back because if I need to talk education, <laughs> she's my gal. Uh, so thank you so much. Don't <laughs> disappear. You, There's still plenty more here to come with Gander Culture, including the woke news of the week. And of course, Marty is back with Media Matters here on RCR. You can look up Kelly's previous interviews with me here on my replays page. And if you have any feedback on our interview, especially if you're a homeschooler, please drop me a line. Email me at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. More music for you now. Hailing from Queensland, Stu Larson is an Aussie singer-songwriter known for his folksy pop style and time for a refresh the coffee and a kickback and a relax. Here's Stu's 13 Sad Farewells. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference. Welcome back to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie, along with my co-host for Media Matters this morning, Marty Gibson. Good morning. Good morning, Marie. How are you doing? 
Oh, I am good. I'm good. We had a quick little chat before we got started. I've had to recompose myself because, of course, uh, the campaign, electoral campaign is now in full swing and Labour, both Labour and National had campaign events over the weekend. And I have to admit, after the Labour campaign event, uh, triggered would be the word that I would use about how I was feeling. You little snowflake. I was. I had a moment. I had a little moment before we started. I had to compose myself. A pot calling the kettle black. Oh, what triggered you. You hadn't caught it across the weekend at the AOTS Centre. Labour had a big campaign event, which I have to admit, they got some visitors. They had a welcoming party from Freedoms New Zealand, including the Vision New Zealand and Outdoor Party yeah. crew, all festooned in purple. All you saw was a sea of purple on the steps as they arrived at the OTS Centre, chanting, uh, please stop the labour pains. <laughs> Might have been no please, just stop the labour pains. <laughs> I thought it was quite a good chant. <laughs> yeah, and I, I saw that when they interrupted the meeting, the labour faithful gathered, started chanting to block them out. What were they chanting? Four legs uh, good, two legs bad, four legs good. <laughs> I know. I know, yeah, because half a dozen managed to, to sneak themselves inside. I know that they will make a big fuss that this is how far the decorum of electioneering has fallen, really. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> it's really worth remembering that poll, and it, it horrified me when it came out, and there's no reason to suppose that it's any different here, where... Over 50% of American registered Democrats thought that people who chose not to get vaccinated should be in some sort of internment camp. And about 30% or more of them thought that people who refused to get vaccinated should have their children taken off them. That's mm. the Labour Party faithful. Pretty much. So there were two things. We'll dive into that now, actually, before we get into detail. I'll rip the Band-Aid off, shall I? Rip the Band-Aid off. I'll rip the Band-Aid off because I am feeling a bit sensitive about this. Hipkins' words at the the press conference at the end of that event, citing that nobody was forced to be vaccinated. I didn't think I'd be so affected by that, but I was deeply affected by that because our family was deeply affected by that. And to Mm. see a rewriting of history... You could almost call it gaslighting, couldn't you? (laughs) Thermonuclear, my friend. Let's hear the scurrilous little weasel. It's just like Grant Robertson talking about what a great idea it is taking GST off fruit and veggies. You can sort of watch him in real time knowing that he knows you know he's lying. Absolutely. His little howdy-doody face blinking its little beady eyes. And if anybody is thinking, have we fallen into a memory hole? No, well, they have. We haven't. Um, in terms of the vaccine mandates, I acknowledge that it was a challenging time for people, but they made ultimately made their own choices. There was no, there was no compulsory vaccination. People made their own choices. The government is planning to require every single teacher at every level and all support staff who work with children to be vaccinated. There was no compulsory vaccination. News Hub can reveal the mandate Chris Hipkins is taking to Cabinet on Monday is a mighty big stick. Every educator who works with a child will have to be vaccinated. People made their own choices. I can now confirm that we'll be extending this requirement to large parts of our health and education workforces as well. There was no compulsory vaccination. Cabinet's agreed that high-risk workers in in the health and disability sector will need to be fully vaccinated by the 1st of December. People made their own choices. This includes general practitioners, pharmacists, community health nurses, midwives, paramedics, 
and all healthcare workers and sites where vulnerable patients are treated, including intensive care units. There was no compulsory vaccination? We'll also be including certain non-regulated healthcare workforces, including aged residential care, home and community support services, kaupapa Māori health providers, and non-government organisations that provide health services. People made their own choices. Schools and early learning staff who have contact with children and students will need to be fully vaccinated by the 1st of January 2022. There was no compulsory vaccination. That includes home-based educators, all those who support people in our schools and early learning services, such as teacher aides, administration and maintenance staff, and contractors. People made their own choices. Secondary schools in Kura will also be required to keep a COVID-19 vaccination register of their students. There was no compulsory vaccination. Students that don't produce evidence of vaccination will be considered unvaccinated. People made their own choices. So, um, I can be for people who are going to be in health workforce who not be vaccinated. Ultimately, in the health workforce, they will not be able to work in those roles. There was no compulsory vaccination. In the education workforce, uh, from next year, they won't be able to work in those roles. People made their own choices. So my message to New Zealanders who have not yet had their first dose, if you want summer, if you want to go to bars and restaurants, get vaccinated. If you want to get a haircut, get vaccinated. If you want to go to a concert or a festival, get vaccinated. If you want to go to a gym or a sports event, get vaccinated. There was no compulsory vaccination. If you are not vaccinated, there will be everyday things you will miss out on. People made their own choices. Uh, everyone will be able to get a vaccine between now and the end of the year. Uh, but of course, you know, and, and I want every New Zealander to come forward, but human behaviour suggests that there will be some people that we have to actually really go out and look for. There was no compulsory vaccination. Uh, but I, I can't say that, you know, that we're not going to have some hesitant people or some people who just haven't come forward that we don't have to go out and find next year. People made their own choices. Cabinet has decided today that vaccinations oh. will be mandated for everyone who works in any workplace where a vaccine certificate is required for entry. There was no compulsory vaccination. This includes hospitality, events, gyms and close proximity businesses such as hairdressers and barbers. People made their own choices. Once the notice period commences, the employee will have that amount of time to get vaccinated. There was no compulsory vaccination. The employee will be able to retain their employment if they get vaccinated in that period, but their employment will be terminated if they do not. Mighty big stick. People made their own choices. So that is courtesy of Coronavirus Plushy over on Rumble if you wanted to check that piece out. And uh, they, in a way, you have to think, media people like that to have done things like that for us because they have maintained a yardstick in order to measure these lies against and I didn't I wasn't expecting to be as hard hit with this we don't talk about COVID much we don't talk about vaccination much because there's lots of other things to discuss but when I saw our Prime Minister stand up and say that and lie yeah blatantly lie he sounded a lot butcher when he was uh, lying, too. Maybe that's another tell. It's worth looking at the etymology of the word compulsory. From our 1580s, it means obligatory, arising from compulsion, done under compulsion, to drive together force. Now, that's pretty much what they did. And remember, Dr. Robert Malone, very early in the piece, said, you're going to see a whole lot of public health officials saying, 
no one forced you to take the vaccine. I saw on the news on Monday night, they were talking about the doctor's strikes, which we'll discuss later on. For the first time, they mentioned rise in mortality after Ashley Bloomfield using all sorts of mathematical gymnastics to say New Zealand was the only country in the world to have a net negative excess death. It's worth saying, in order to do that, you've got to include years following the vaccine. And then there's a bit where it dips into negative excess deaths. But if you take it from, as we've discussed before, from 2019 uh, or maybe 2018, it's up 14%. Mm. And there was also, too, a dip in that 2020, the, the COVID year, yeah. the main COVID year. Yeah, when that... you'd expect it was shooting right up. Yeah. I have to admit, it blindsided me. I didn't expect to have the visceral anger and upset that I had to that. And I'm sure that many of our listeners uh, will be there. And then, it, of course, I went through and had a look at the reaction with the media to that and crickets, except, except yesterday morning, I do listen on a Tuesday morning to Mike Hosking because he interviews Chris Hopkins on a Tuesday morning. Mm. That's one interview of the week that I make a point of listening to. He eviscerated him in that interview, particularly around costs. And again, we're, we're going to touch on that in a little bit. But he asked him right at the end of the interview, does he stand by those comments at that press conference? And he had him on the ropes around it and got that confirmation before he signed off. Now, anybody here that has ever listened to, to Hosk knows that he is fully behind the vaccination program. He believed 110% in it. And mm. he finds that the likes of those, as I use Aotearoa Farm, the chickens, he finds the chickens really frustrating. They annoy the living bejesus out of him. So the fact that he actually brought that up and got Hipkins to stand and clarify that was intriguing because I thought, hmm, okay, I, I don't know why he's done that, but he did and he reinforced it. And he's the only one that I've heard. Well, it was telling in that hagiography of Ashley Bloomfield a couple of weeks back we was asked, you know, who was the most, who was the toughest interviewer? And he sort of dismissed Mike Hosking, said he's basically a shock jock, so he'll ask a question but then won't ask a follow-up. And I find that too. I find that of Jack Tame sometimes too. He, he, he'll kind of ask a question. There's an obvious second follow-up question just waiting to be smashed back over the net, and he'll go, yeah, seems legit. Mm. Mm, indeed. So for any of us out there, I mean, obviously those of us that sit on that side of the fence will not be surprised by that, but I certainly was a little bit flawed. The other thing that I found rather interesting is speaking of memory holes. I think this is something, this is, you know, Grant Robertson has his fiscal holes. Chris Hipkins obviously is suffering from memory holes. First, there was the not remembering that Winston had ruled him out all the way back in November. And then he has this massive announcement at the event around the dental care and, I mean, the Greens had already been there and done that sort of three odd weeks earlier, but obviously this is a little bit like Marxism. We're going to do it better this time, darling. And so, yeah. obviously, Chippy thinks he's going to do dental better this time, darling. Far out. What did you think of that? Again, you always say this. It's not so worrying that he lies just in a barefaced manner. The, the worrying thing is the Kiwis who buy it, you know, among them is that solid 30% who, if the American studies are anything to go by, I think people who refuse to get the vaccine should have had their children taken off them and been placed in some sort of state care. 
you know, I'll keep going back to your um, interview about the cluster B personalities. We've got some mental pathology behind the wheel here, and you've got to stop sitting there with your mouth open wondering what's going on, because I know it's coming at us thick and fast, but they're not going to stop. And and I've got all these people say, I just want to get back to normal. It's like, dude, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. And the longer you just fawn, you have that fawning response over these people just doing this stuff, the worse it's going to get. Mm, Absolutely. And no. You know, that's what Josh said. And then, no, and you know, for those people that want things to get back to normal, you need to start exercising your no muscle because you know that stuff out there is wrong. People say, I'm not going to comply this time. It's like, you complied last time. Mm. I'm just going to go slightly off bent for a second and we're going to go back to speaking of non compliance. And I need to send an email to Katie Hopkins. Have you seen what's been happening to all the Yulee's cameras around London? Yeah. That now, talk about that's some serious. Makes you proud to be British, doesn't it? If you're wondering what I'm talking about, so these cameras, so this is this ultra low emission zone that they've created in London. So it's essentially a toll zone that if you're driving around at certain times of the day in certain places, they photograph your bumper and your license plate and they send you a toll because, you know, you shouldn't be there because it's creating too many emissions. Well, I have to admit, Londoners are not taking to it. At all. Mm. And so these polls cost millions and millions and millions of dollars. They've put these cameras up. And we all know that the UK, I think, is the most CCTV'd country, I think, outside of China in the world. So they've got all these cameras. They've put all these polls up with all these cameras for the strict purpose of taking these photographs in these Yuli zones. And citizens have been chopping them down, actually. They've been getting all honeyhicky on them. That's why the Romans had to leave Britain. Is that bloody minded? But it's a playful bloody mindedness. That, that, it is, and we we spend so much time hearing about how much Britain sucks. You know, from the people who want to make us feel like we don't belong in New Zealand. And you know, I'm saying I'm British tongue in cheek. I've, you know, obviously culturally to a large extent I am, but I'm other things as well. But yeah, that playful, uh, willful oppositional two fingers up. Love it about them. And it's also a playfulness in terms of protest that often Māori in this country have always been very, very good at. Mm. But, you know, we've got British British heritage. The fucker that dare not speak its name. And I saw that at the beginning of that event in Auckland where you had all the the sea of purple out on the front steps. But you also had it, which is one of my favourite photographs in the newspaper was Mike Munro on the Weekend Herald, Mike Munro's opinion piece. And there's this fantastic photo of um, a picture with, I think it's, is that Simeon Brown? But it's it's Luxon and he's doing a little, his press conference and there's a fence in the background. And just popping over the fence, having a wee word was Carl Mokaraka from Freedom New Zealand, just sort of like yeah. popping in, sort of like, hi. <laughs> It's you know they, yeah. these chickens these chickens keep popping up everywhere and well Luxon's response okay. I mean it was it was telling in that you know he's got that Pākehā thing where they're too scared to pick up the wero you know if someone chucks the wero you gotta pick it up you mm. you know maybe you gotta do your own haka back yeah but if you yeah. stand there like a deer in the headlights. I know some people will look at those political tactics and be very disparaging about them. 
But I look at those political tactics, whether I agree with them or not, and both sides exercise this. So before you think that, oh, this is these crazy freedomers or anti-vaxxers and this is what they're doing. No, 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 no. The Greens have been doing this for decades, people. Mm. This is stock and trade for them. All right. Yeah. You're thinking, oh no, they haven't. Mm, Ihimato protest in Auckland. No one uh, chucked oh, a rubber dick at. Uh, yeah, Waitangi. Um, yeah. um, let's look at potentially what went on up with Posey Parker at Albert Park. Green leaders there. So this is nothing new. And political protest, I think we can't relinquish that. These are part of our freedoms of expression. And whilst it might be really highly annoying. If you're on the receiving end, it is part of our democracy and allowing us to express ourselves democratically. Especially so I think it's good. once the social contract's broken. Especially once the social contract is broken. And I'm glad you put that up because it's part of the solution that was in the psychology of totalitarianism with Matthias Desmet. And he said that one of the ways to break this hypnosis that people are in is you've just got to keep tap, 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 tap. And that's what these protests are. They're tapping away at those ideas. They're chipping away the veneer of the siphon effect of, you know, or whatever it may be. They're breaking the disruption in the frequency. And you've just got to keep doing that to allow a crack of light in so people potentially will start to realize they can ask questions again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so the dental, the other great announcement, back to memory holes. Sorry, I'm going around in circles this morning. Back to memory holes and the dental policy. So once that was announced, I thought, really, Chris? That's your gotcha. This is going to win Labour back votes moment. So I promptly popped um, that afternoon up to very, very close friends around the corner to who happened to have a dental practice at, to discuss. And the, so I said to them, what do you think? When the Greens announced it, they were like, not going to happen. Labor's announced it, and they're thinking, still not going to happen. But the fact that the, that left block has set it as a priority. Yeah. I said, in reality, is this a thing? Is this going to work? They said, no, it won't work for many reasons. One, A, we don't train enough dentists in New Zealand. We have one dental school, which is like in an article that was written by Carolyn Mingyi, good gizzy girl, go, go, Cass. Uh, Carolyn yeah. Mingyi, they referred to an Auckland family who is a dentist. They're wanting their two children wanting to train as dentists to maintain the family legacy in the business. Neither of the kids can get in, and they likened it to a Hunger Games situation. I've got another friends who are dentists. Their daughter, exactly the same problem. She's now an audiologist because she couldn't get into dent school. Mm. So A, we don't train enough of them. So then how are you going to treat all of these people? Because there isn't the capacity in the current private system. I mean, there are really good reasons to ensure that people have good dental health. That If you've got friends in, as we do in Gisborne, what one of the things that you know, as terrible as their dental health. I can think about a lot of, you know, mates I've got there. And, you know, just I remember a dentist saying to me once, you know, if someone had a sore on their finger that they've got in their mouth, they wouldn't sleep before they'd gone to hospital because it's tucked away in their mouth. They sort of ignore it and creates bacteria that attacks heart valves. I mean, it, it has a lot of cascading negative effects on health. Yeah, I saw Ricardo Menendez March said everybody in Aotearoa should be able to go to the dentist. 
And his thing was, by making sure the wealthiest few pay their fair share through a wealth tax, we can not only provide free dental for every single person in Aotearoa, but an income guarantee that will give everyone peace of mind that can always cover life's essentials. UBI. Good old gay Shivara. Well, further to that, I asked, you know, why it wouldn't work, other than the fact that there weren't enough dentists out there. If there were enough dentists, how would it work? And he said, well, it wouldn't. He said, because currently in practices, so just even gentle checkups, right? Just, I, I mean, I go to the dentist every six months to get the once over uh, and a scale and a polish. And even when we went through what I call the fiscal transition, which we, which we did last year, <laughs> that was that was money that I still put aside because of the value of that and the importance of that. Up until last year, Mr. Marie never had a filling and had never had any dental issues and he had religiously just cared for his teeth. Right. Right. And he had his first dental issue ever last year. Honestly, you would have thought his right leg was cut off. This was new territory for him. Yeah. However, for us, that was always a priority and it's something that I've always done. Well, you require long-term thinking, don't you? You've got to put up with some short-term pain. In the long term, it's worth it. And we've got a big swing towards or away from that sort of long-term thinking. So even if you made it free, I mean, it's still not pleasant. And you know what the thing, and this is the issue that I have with anything that's free. The minute it's free, there is no value in it. And even, and this is the other side of any socialised healthcare, the minute something is free, no. There is no free things in life, people. So you have to yeah. ask who is actually paying for it and who is the product. And the answer to that, my friends, is you are the product. When it is free, you are the product because <laughs> you are paying for it through your taxes. You yes. are paying for it through the, your children's uh, future borrowing against their future earnings to the tune of $194 billion a year. Thank you very much, Squealer Robinson. It's not free. It's never free. Something that we've found with our business is any time we've done something or given something for free, it's just such a pain. It always creates problems. There's just something about it that seems to bring out the worst in people. Mm. I, don't, I don't know what it is. Well, I do. It's, I guess it's it calls forth the, the worst tendencies in terms of entitlement and personal outrage. I don't know. No, no you're right. So the election campaign is sort of kind of ramping up. I, th- I thought the Labour launch was a fizzer. To be fair, I think Nationals, whilst there's a few kinks in there, I think the fact that National have gone with the tax policy, they've gone with their bread and butter. So mm. good on them. They know who they're about. And to be fair, I actually had a look at that. And for us now, it's like, mm, actually, that would help. I'd much rather have a tax policy like that that would give me more of my own money back in my pocket. Yeah, that gives it- you too. Like, it's your money. I know. Take less. Totally. You know, it's always, you know, you're going to give it to the the wealthiest New Zealanders or whatever, although they've prudently avoided doing that. There's always that failure to frame it as the hideous amount of money that government takes out of the economy. Mm. And, I, you know, old uh, Liam Dan is big on this, you know, he's like, oh, tax cuts are a terrible idea until we have declared victory over inflation and shored up the crown accounts against the risk of another external shock. Is really getting the government to take more money out of the economy, you know, better? I mean, maybe mm. maybe pay down a bit of that debt or something. 
And then he goes on to say, New Zealand opted to run a very strong response to the pandemic, despite my view being about as fashionable as a middle-aged man in skin-tight jeans. I still think it was worth it. So he sticks the script, old Liam, and one of those scripts, which shares with the World Economic Forum, is that we need to cut economic growth. You will own nothing and you'll be happy. Yeah. Mm. The interview with Hipkins yesterday, he was taken to task over the, the deficit, the $194 billion, which you and I have talked about here before. Do you know what the interest on that per, per year, on that $194 billion is now? Mm. $6 billion a year. Yeah. $6 billion. $6 billion. And it's about number four in our Enough to pay for dentistry 15 or 18 times over. It's, uh, it's the number four thing after it was like uh, health, education, housing, and one other, I can't remember what the other one was. And I mean, just to give you it's just some little ideas, the police budget every year, $2.6 billion. The corrections budget, $2.5 billion. The foreign affairs budget, $2.2 billion. Uh, conservation, only $880 million. For clean green New Zealand, only eight hundred and eighty million for conservation, sixty-six million dollars to run the public service, forty-three billion dollars now social development, forty-three billion now social development is a euphemism for benefits. Yeah, and again, you look at some of these areas where the big spending is; it doesn't make anything, it doesn't consume anything particularly, so it ties in with that thing. Okay, we'll get the economy and just increasingly just adding straws to the camel's back debt and we won't increase emissions so we're going to borrow money send it overseas via corrupt carbon blah blah as i always say and it doesn't make emissions it just slowly enslaves us what are the odds what a coincidence the economic crisis that this country is in is not getting I think, the focus of this election. So there are plenty of things. I mean, we've talked about education. We've talked about health. The crime is out of control, particularly at a grassroots level. We're seeing all of that. And yet, and yet, when it comes to crime, you've got people that are getting off drug crimes, arm crimes, all the time in this country, and yet they've just prosecuted three Australians for going up Kadrona on fake lift passes for the day. Yeah. I mean, what does that cost us in the taxpayers' time to put that through the courts? Really? Mm. And they got well, this There was an excellent election. article on in some of the Star Times business section by Amy Shaw, and there were some good numbers in the paper, but you've got to go through to the business section to find them. Mm. Even though if journalists uh, were more numerate, you could easily get a, a headline out of it that's far more compelling than what ends up being there. But Foodstuffs, last week, Foodstuffs New Zealand said retail crime in its supermarkets was up by almost 60% in the past year with serious incidents such as assault, robbery and burglary more than doubling year on year. Just between May and July, incidents were up 19% on the previous quarter. Foodstuffs North Island record, recorded 54 assaults, mostly on frontline staff, up from 39. And, and it quoted our chief executive of the Canterbury Chamber of Commerce, uh, Leanne Watson, said she believed the cost of living crisis and a perception that there were no consequences for the offences being committed was driving the increase in retail crime. The answer is facial recognition technology, apparently. And that retail crime also ties into the current senior medical doctor strike. And if you think to yourself, how does that tie in? Well, it ties in because these doctors are now striking. Part of the reason they're striking isn't just pay, it's conditions. And in fact, I think it would be more conditions than pay, to be fair. And part of those conditions are, particularly in emergency care or the more acute care, the front end of the system, 
is how they're treated by patients. And that treatment largely is due to absolute exhaustion and sheer exasperation of the failure of the system as a whole, of that social contract now being broken. Mm. In this article as well, she talked about this perception that staff were like a lightning rod for all this resentment that was stored up. And, you know, like, I mean, Woolworths is saying it has reported a 303% increase in physical assaults, an 806% rise in security incidents, and a 326% increase in theft incidents in the past six years. What's been happening for the past six years? Mm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is from a government, this is from a government that promised promised it was her personal mission she even appointed a ministry and appointed herself there the sole arbiter to fix child poverty it is just insane so the state so the doctors too are striking and uh, the strike by senior dentists and doctors is the first national strike in New Zealand's history more than 80% of ASM's members voted in favour of taking strike action. It follows two years of talking real-term pay cuts for our employer. My motivation is not just pay. This is a paediatrician, Julian Vice. I see my colleagues burn out. I see those who chose to leave the public health system and workplace conditions in a culture that is deteriorating. There's that cultural deterioration again. And I know that this is a big deal because Mr. Marie was a senior doctor in this country practicing for many years. And mm. he has gone through many of these negotiations in the past and they've come and gone and come and gone. Believe me, to get a senior doctor to strike is no small thing. Yeah. At all. And the fact that they're striking, this is a beacon. This is one of those touchstone moments that you know that things are systemically, systemically wrong. The perception is that things are getting close to collapse in certain areas. As each person leaves, the pressure on the remaining staff increases exponentially. And if you look at the figures coming out of the UK, sick leave taken by staff, it's it's rising exponentially. There's a lot of, and, and I mean, this is up until recently, anyone who tested positive for COVID, even if they're asymptomatic, took two weeks off automatically. That didn't help. No, no, it doesn't help. That strike, I think, is is a real touchstone moment. As what you were saying is a real touchstone moment. They're talking about stripping things out of the system in terms of savings. I, I just got to a point where this Sunday I said to you before we got started, you said, how are you going? I'm, I'm like, I feel just so fractious and befuddled. And then I read Bruce Cottrell. Yeah, good old Bruce Cottrell. He's one of those voices of reason. Mm. I cherish whenever he publishes anything because I finally see it. I was reading out some of his his excellent analysis of the figures. And it's, you know, he's one of the few people you see in the media who actually come right out and talk about how much the Marxist student politicians who were given a credit card have spanked it. Oh, totally spanked it. And I'm going to read the preface into this so you can dive into the numbers, right? So I have had this growing unease for a while. I just, and that really got highlighted on Sunday. And then I read this passage. Many of us will be, or once would have been, proud of a country we grew up in. It is part of who we are. Our grandfathers and uncles fought in the wars where we acquitted ourselves well. We grew up hearing the stories, stories that affect our personalities and our patriotism. That's why we face the flag and sing the anthem. A sense of pride will influence how we conduct ourselves, how we present ourselves, how we behave. 
pride affects the effort we put into to achieve a goal, winning a sporting contest or helping someone in need. And pride in yourself gives you the confidence, confidence to try things, to help others, chase new experiences, to put your name forward or to volunteer, to go after a job that's just out of reach but not out of sight, to back yourselves, to have a go. I'd like to think I'm proud to be a New Zealander. I was born here, educated here, had my first jobs here. I watched my parents work hard here and I learned the value of working to get to a better place. As I travelled overseas, I was always a Kiwi and proud to be one. When you travel, the All Blacks, Team New Zealand and people from the past such as Sir Edmund Hillary and Bruce McLaren seem not so far away. Typically, we are passionate about our country and for good reason. But that passion is gradually fading. We hear people talking about leaving. They've had enough. Marissa, I completely understand how you feel. Well, it's uh, and my contention is that it's deliberate. You know, this whole thing where it's permissible to call a racial group colonisers and and so on, even if it's been 180 years since they got here, in my, or 190 in my case. Yeah, it, it's basically to take the fight out of people for their country, I, I think. But yeah, he goes... Onto the figures, when the Labour-led government took over the Treasury benches in 2017, total Crown expenditure was $99 billion a year. Over the previous five years, 2012 to 2017, that number had grown from $92 billion. So the total growth in government spending immediately before their arrival was $7 billion, or 7.6% over the five years, about 1.5% a year. In 2017, the election resulted in the Labour-led government being installed in the five reported years since then, 2023 results are not yet published, our total government expenditure has gone from $99 billion in 2017 to $151 billion in 2022. So this government, which has taken our borrowing from $60 billion to $160 billion in just six years, and our total annual government spending from $99 billion when they took office to over... $150 billion today, with plans for another $92 billion over the next four years, appears to see cause for celebration in their announcement that they will cut that future spending by $4 billion, which I assume makes the total increase just $88.5 billion. And when the interest on that bill, based on the $194 billion, which is the total total, is $6 billion a year, you're, just, you're not even carving into the interest, son. Oh, yeah. yeah. Our finance minister continues to stand atop our podium of truth and say most of our inflation problems are generated overseas and our books are in good shape, especially compared to our trading partners. The facts are starting to assemble and the reality is that New Zealand economic measures are woeful on every front. And above that, he, he says that, yeah, I mean, I think you said this possibly on the political panel, we were second to last, mm-hmm. 159th. Out of 160 countries, for we beat growth. Equatorial Guinea. Thank God. Mm. That was important. <laughs> Not quite the downtrow. Yeah. Again, when have you seen that as a headline? Oh, We're last oh. in economic yeah. growth, and they're still patting themselves on the back, talking about their COVID response. Just consider that it means the GDP outlook for 2024 is worse than almost every basket case economy, even war-torn countries, every collapsing state except for one. It's worse than Zimbabwe, Greece or Venezuela. <clears throat> Congratulations, Robbo. 
Yeah, good good job. Mind you, who was it? Was it Michael Cullen that said, leave no gas in the tank? Well, I mean, he said that, but he didn't rack up the debt. That, that's mm. Robbo's big, great leap backwards has been not only spend all the money, but rack up the credit card. No, Unbelievable. It, it is, uh, look, it is genuinely unbelievable. And this election is going to be one, I think, where people are going to have to make decisions. I'm, I'm, I've am I'm, decided I'm a candidate vote now. I'm quite happy with that. But I'm a party vote is still very much up for grabs. Um, the polls are coming in thick and fast now. We're pretty much getting uh, three to four a month on a regular basis. The Roy Morgan, which runs every month, like clockwork, Australian-based, not considered as one of the mainstream p- polls in this country, but their methodology still shows trends across time. And that came out a couple of days ago. It shows national at 31%, down 2.5. Labor, 24%, down 2. So that downward trajectory for Labor is still very much continuing. This was the one that I'm I'm not 100% certain on, and mm. I don't know whether it's an outlier, but Act 18 up 4. That's going to... That's going to bring some uh, people into Parliament who had no idea that they were going to be in Parliament. Yeah, not but not climate deniers or... Uh, no, they've been culled. No, they've been culled. Uh, the Greens are up 3.5 to 12.5. So essentially, Act and the Greens have cannibalised Labour and National. And the Greens have also picked up some stuff from Te Pāti Māori, which are down 2 to 4. They were 6 on the last poll, which was an outlier number because they're consistently mm. rolling around three in every other poll. So this is actually taking them back. Pop is down to, to, to two. They're starting to shore up. The other one in terms of a trend continuing is New Zealand First, 5.5, up 0.5. But he's more consistently now polling above that 5% threshold. Mm. So things are heating up. And in his announcement at a meeting, well, it was at a meeting, he announced around compensation, uh, yeah. monetary compensation to and it's those. Such who a shrewd been... political move, isn't it? Yeah, because I mean, according to them, well, it's safe and effective. So, what are you saying? There's no compensation to pay. Yeah. They know. Yeah, the reality of it is: is will that happen? No, I say that genuinely. It's not not saying that I don't believe it should happen. In reality, will it happen? No, but by announcing it like he has, he has put that question of compensation for those people who have been affected in the public forum. Well, I mean, if you think you were triggered by that claim, imagine how the people who got the shot to keep their job, to pay their mortgage, and then got seriously sick. I remember interviewing a, a woman who got injected by a hairdresser who had retrained, started feeling faint and collapsed in a toilet at the shopping mall where she was injected and just had all of this terrible problems that are ongoing, wasn't allowed to get an exemption. You know, they said, well, you're just going to have to have one in hospital where they've got resus equipment. Those things, you know, and if you look at the Royal Commission of Inquiry as it now stands, and look at what's in and what's out. What's in, just one example, consideration of the interests of Māori in the context of a pandemic consistent with the Te or Waitangi relationship. And what's not in it, clinical decisions, how strategies or measures applied to any individual person, the epidemiology of the virus or the efficacy of vaccines. 
the health reforms, judgments or decisions of courts or independent agencies like the Ombudsman or independent police conduct authority won't look into particular decisions taken by the Reserve Bank's Independent Monetary Policy Committee, any adaptation of court procedures by the judiciary, or any adaptations of parliamentary processes during the pandemic or conduct of the general election. Make no mistake, this is a COVID election. Did you see the other article about, well, I know you did because you had a chat about it before we started, Voices for Freedom, a pro-whaling lobbyist, and links to New Zealand first. Old Andrea Vance, there was a lot of concerns about how to protect the empire rattling around in her Darth Vader haircut this week. Yeah, I did, did make a phone call and did a bit of background on that. Because when I read it, it just read to be really vacuous and wafer thin and lots of smoke and mirrors. And I, to be fair... I don't get the point of the article. I really... Well, I think the point came at the end. There was one sentence which was really telling, I thought. Um, if conspiracists enter parliament, they will gain a platform and access to resources that will hugely increase their ability to spread misinformation and derail public debate. That word derail is really telling, isn't it? it suggests that public debate is on rails that there mm. are things we can talk about mm. and things, things that are beyond the pale. Mm. And it's interesting to examine what those things are. Obviously, you know, one of them is, well, how come our birth rates dropped by, live birth rates dropped by 30% since the old safe and effective? How come deaths are up by 14% since the old safe and effective? And disabilities uh, are up about 36 or 37%. 38%. 38%. And how come that, those, certainly the disability figures are almost in lockstep with the states? And again, in the interview with Hipkins yesterday, that was a number because they've got more people now um, drawing, and we, I mentioned this in political panel, more people now drawing, drawing job seeker benefits, but the jobs are actually out there. He was yeah. questioned, why, well, that was why, why the gap? Yeah, that was a good point. Well made, uh, Marie. You know, I, it hadn't occurred to me. You know, we've got such low unemployment. You know, how come everything feels like it's falling to bits and unemployment so low? Well, maybe 14% of our workforce now is too disabled to work. So I don't know what it was before. Mm, true. Uh, you could work it out by subtracting 38% of, uh, of 14%, I guess. It's the um, hyperbolic language that flows around. You know, this, this case of... Anybody that has an idea or a thought that is not on the prescribed list of rhetoric or dogma is, you know, applied with all these epithets. I think that's part of the reason I was so fractious because there was a lot of that in the papers over the weekend. I mean, my little friend, my wee friend, uh, Chanel, the online abuse towards queer, particularly transgender New Zealanders, rose to genocidal levels yeah. after Parker's visit, says Chanel Lal. There's a guy who talks about ending whiteness and stuff like that. It yeah. might be just projection. Maybe he likes a bit of uh, levels genocide himself. Again, you tell me where those bodies are stacking up, love, and I will, I will talk about it. That upsets me because that is a very, very powerful, loaded word. Yeah. You know how he was saying, oh, you know, 
what's the big deal? You know, you go to a toilet with the door closed anyway. So what does it matter if uh, a trans person wants to go to the ladies' toilet? And my thing was, well, we'll go to the men's then. And I, I will say this. If I was in a changing room and there was a transgender man who was getting hassled or abused, I'd step in for them. I'd be quite happy to do that. I'd say, hey, don't be a dick, you know, mm. to whoever was hassling the person who didn't want to have a dick, you know. I'd, mm. So, you know, I don't feel genocidal towards them. I feel protective of my daughters who go into um, changing rooms if men who some, you know, have a compulsion to be in women's changing rooms want to go and get naked. Every single trans person that I've met, and I have met a few, they're not down with all of this at mm. all. They just want to quietly get on with their lives. Yeah. Why would you want to do weightlifting? I can understand, you know, you've got prettier underwear and women are more admired for their beauty and that's a nice thing, I guess. But why would you want to go in an MMA match against women? Actually, yeah. just getting back to that Voices for Freedom pro-whaling um, article that was knitted out of a spider's web by Andrea Vance. You know, another thing she said was, she talked about Dr. Matt Shelton. No other party or politician would even consider meeting Dr. Shelton. Now, it's worth going back to what took Matt Shelton, who's a was a very conscientious, proud general practitioner, what got him in the cack. And what it was, was he said to his patients who were either trying to get pregnant or pregnant, the testing hasn't been that robust. It certainly hasn't been as robust on this therapy as it is on anything else before it hits a pregnant woman. It's mostly been tested on rats. Maybe, you know, if, you, if you're pregnant, I'd hold off until a bit more data comes in. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the live birth rate is down by 28%. So he was, on the face of it at least, making some pretty good points. Certainly, Andrea Vance hasn't refuted them or even addressed them. No, but because it's not about that, as you said. It's it, her point is, is do, to do, do, try and draw the yeah, they draw these wafer thin ribbons of connection. Yeah. Which yeah, it is it is fairly crazy. It is an interesting time and we just each week we'll do what we do. In terms of the bread and circuses though, uh we I one of the things I have found really, really interesting is on I don't know who you who have you got your telephone with? I've got mine with what was Vodafone and is now oh, two one. Degrees. Oh, two degrees, right, yeah. On my phone, for the last little bit, I've had this little thing that sits in the top corner of the screen saying, up the was. I was like, what? It usually mm. says 1NZ up there. What's this up the was business? It's code for we love working class people. Oh, oh is, that, is that what it is? Okay, well, I had no idea because, you know, I, I, I'm just spending too much time Even working. Chris Hopkins has been saying it. Apparently Chloe Swarbrick kicked it all off. No wonder I missed the memo. Anyway, uh, leaders... Oh, that ship sailed for me 40 years ago. But anyway. Yeah, get... <laughs> I'm at the point where I don't care. It's so liberating. <laughs> oh, I can't hear people over my own comfort. <laughs> exactly. I was just going to say, we're from Gizzy Darling. We were never hip. We, we were hip in our, own, in our own little sandy lunchtime, weren't we? Anyway, uh, leaders commit to raise the wars, the Beehive Diaries, Michael Nielsen. And I saw that again. And I'm like, I feel like I've missed out on something here. And then I realised it was Warriors. Because they're actually doing quite well. Oh, that's what that's all about. But in a way, it's like 
these politicians trying to tack themselves onto this. I'd love to know how many of these politicians have actually been to a Warriors game and, I've and got know a theory, what's going on. Marie, that rugby is a place where you can go and see masculinity and patriotism in a zoo, in a caged environment, because yes. you're not allowed it outside of those contexts. It's pathological, but that's the one place that we can still kind of celebrate it, you know, like an endangered species that you might go to a zoo to see. I've always been a rugby, a rugby supporter. Now I'm saying that, though, I went to the very, 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 very first Warriors game ever. Long story. You're right. You know, it, there is something about sport that can take you out of whatever's going on in your head in the world for 90 minutes and you can just forget. And whether it be football or league or rugby, and for me generally rugby's my jam, and then I got all befuddled because I didn't realise that the Rugby World Cup kicks off this weekend. And mm-hmm. I was quite and, – and I love, even if I don't follow the stuff during the main season, and I ditched Sky years ago, will only tend to watch test matches if I think, oh, we'll go to the pub and have a burger and fries and watch a game. I completely, completely missed – everything's been so busy. I completely missed the Rugby World Cup. I love the Rugby World Cup. And it's not for the All Blacks, funnily enough. I love watching our guys, don't get me wrong, and I'm there. But I love watching all the smaller countries. So what I would often do is I would go through each pool and pick one team in a pool, and I'd think, oh, wouldn't it be nice that you had a wee upset and knocked over some of those – you put a bit of money on it? Have no. a little I have been known. Thank you, Japan, eight years ago. <laughs> That's what I enjoy. I love watching teams like Uruguay and Japan and Namibia and Fiji, uh, teams that you know and are unlikely to get to the top four, or highly unlikely to get to the top four, but every now and then one will sneak into the magical top eight, like the Japanese, and, and you actually think, oh, yeah, I'm from a rugby family, and so it has always been, you know, culturally there. But that's why the when I read Bruce Cottrell's opening statements in his article, I was like, yeah, I just kind of feel like some of the key touchstones in our culture, in our culture as a nation, as New Zealanders, as Kiwis, things that we always, you know, that are kiwi as like kiwi onion dip and what is tomato sauce and make sure you blow on the pie. You know, those sorts of things have been stripped away from us and, and covered in a film of identity politics. And You know, multiculturalism, they don't mean multiculturalism. They mean we're all the same and we all think the same. And, you know, as I said, the whole the denigration of Pākehā and New Zealanders isn't to uplift Māori, it's to take our fight out of us uh, for the country. Yeah, and actually I'm mourning that, I think, this week. I think that's why I sort of felt, you know, I've looked at this past six years and I really, really pray, and I'm not one with the Lord as a rule, but I just, I'm putting it out to the universe that it needs to change and whoever gets in to take over actually needs to start, you know, start listening to the people and allowing those who have felt disgruntled to at least share their concern. It'd be good if the National can... Party did what it says on the box, wouldn't it? Yeah. But, you know, I've got this this suspicion that if a nationalist, and they always call it populist, party arose in New Zealand and started pushing for our national interests, 
before you could say uh, Klaus Schwab, Labour and National would form a grand coalition. Yeah, interesting. Mm. Mm. I mean, you know, apart from all that, I mean, there was there was a new agencies entering a new era of collaboration. So you're sort of starting to see a bit of the thought police coming in. Call for regulator clamp down on the wild west of broad of podcasts. I found that the weirdest article. Yeah, pulling a bit of anti-Semitism out. <laughs> well, yeah, because when in doubt, when in doubt, go for anti-Semitism. Surefire winner. It's not the first time either. I think um, criticisms of globalism were characterised as anti-Semitic. It's pulling out the big guns. Although I will say this, New Zealand Jewish Council spokesperson Juliet Moses said the joke was in bad taste. This is talking about someone making a joke about uh, Jewish people. It says, Shalom, give me some of your money. Yeah, yeah. But she did say, to her credit, Moses said that whatever the new media regulations look like, Censorship wasn't the answer. As the Jewish Council, we always favour freedom of speech and leaving things out in the open as much as possible. We don't think censorship is generally the best way to deal with things. Good on you, Jewish people. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know what? I think they're sick and tired of being used as the chew toy in these political scraps. Well, as Avi said uh, I'm just trying to remember. I think it might have been in, in one of Cam's interviews with him. Uh, conservative Jewish people are some of the most persecuted people in the world because they're persecuted by liberal Jews mm. vociferously. And I was listening to a, um interview with the great legal mind, Alan Dershowitz, and he was talking about some of the persecution he'd faced for defending Donald Trump. It was unbelievable. Larry David, who I actually quite like, was screaming at him, he said, you know, so saying he was, you know, it was like he was defending some high-ranking Nazi or something like that. Well, I actually think liberal Jews, and Dr. Naomi Wolf is one of them, have been left behind. The Overton window has left them behind. The revolution always eats its own. I mean, if you look at the proportion of feminists who are uh, identified as Jewish, it's in the 90s. It's, it's pretty high. You wouldn't have had a chance to catch it, but I've just had a really interesting chat to Helen Pluckrose, and we talked about classic liberalism. And so, of course, she is someone who is proudly a classic liberal. She writes around it extensively. She's part of the grievance studies of here. And we were talking about, you know, what happens if you push too far in one direction away from classic liberal ideas of discussion and debate and all of these things that we're sorely missing, things that this article wants to clamp down on. I mean, the whole point of this article isn't about this poor taste joke, um, Jewish Mm. joke in this podcast. This article is they want to shut down alternative voices in platforms they can't control like this one. End of. It's as simple as that. And the more they push in one direction, the difficulty is, is things can push too far back in the opposite direction. Your barn door. It is, and and that's why free speech is so important and good on the Jewish Council. Yeah, I mean the point I made earlier about how I, you know, come to the aid of a trans person who was getting hassled or assaulted, and it's the same with with anyone, you know, and and so the the characterisation of someone who says things as genocidal is so so disingenuous, isn't it? Well, it is very. Did you see the National uh, Radio New Zealand's dropped from number one to number five, yeah. plunging like a rock? Shocker. Yeah, and, and did you see, it's 
it's got an increase to its budget of 25.7 million. Oh, kia ora, Willie. Yeah. Kia ora, bro. And, 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 you know, when I, I couldn't help but think when I saw that about what the budget of Reality Check Radio must be. Imagine if we had it even... 10% of the increase that Radio New Zealand has. And, and you know what? I'll be bold, I'll make bold enough to say we've got better content already. Mm. You know, I just feel really proud about the work that we all do here. And we've so got such I. an it, incredible team. Yeah, great to be a part of it because, and I think people can sense when they start listening to it that we might look at a few things that, you know, are outside Overton's window, but we do have a commitment to truth. We do try to do the the legwork in terms of making sure we're not saying anything that's not true. And it's motivated by a love for the country and the people who live in it. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's reflected in the fact that we are funded by the people for the people. So for every single person that's donated, even if it's a dollar, it really does make a difference. And, you know, we couldn't do it without without you. And we've got some great stuff coming up. You know, the app, I know, is well on its way to development. I can't wait for that to come. We've got yeah. the Foundation Club. I know you've been doing some more writing. We've got an, a, someone working behind the scenes now, a journalist who's actually getting some fantastic short bites out for those foundation members so you can actually get a really good snapshot of what's going on out there in the world of media. We've got great shows. Yeah, Luke Skywalker to Andrea Vance's Darth Vader. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and even having political content now, Cam's show, as you've said, is some of the best political content that we have got. With zero political funding. What a coincidence. Yeah, and long format interviews. Like, I've just, I'm loving hearing that. And then farming or anything that's going on politically in that space, mm. I have learnt volumes from Greenwash with Jess Preet and Don. And if you need a boost and you're feeling a bit flat, I listen to something that Natalie's got over on Up Your Brave and, you know, you, you turn it off and you think, yeah, I feel good about that today. So there yeah. is something there for everybody. So thank you for everyone for listening. We do appreciate it. Yeah, with, with just as, as it's uh, growing, we're able to pull together some of those uh, best of clips and those are fantastic. I was listening to um, Paul Brennan's best of the other day that's really worth catching if you yeah. um, haven't and, oh. and that'll give you an idea of, of some of the things that are available but you know the other thing I'd say is please do share the content because that's what it takes to hit that critical mass that we need and yeah. Kiwis oh you're docile and compliant come on come on yeah, we've share got some it. great shareables now. So do, you know, if you want to find them, if you're on Facebook, go and check it out on Facebook. If you're on X, go and check Reality Check Radio out there. The shareables are all shared and you can go and pass them pass them on. So please do that. Hey, look, we better get moving. Thank you very much uh, for another week. Are you back on the panel on Friday morning? Yep. Excellent. New. I'm having a Friday morning. Ah, oh, good for you. Can't get the buscanator too often. I think I drove it. You, you have enough of me already. <laughs> it's oh, all it's good. Don't disappear. Of course, Woke News of the Week is coming up right after this. And if you want to give us any feedback, we've had some great fit. You made, made someone spit the coffee, I think, all out over the newspaper on political panel with your Kiwi trout face. Um, <laughs> so true, though. Yes, so true. Uh, 2057 is the text number and inbox at Reality Check Radio is the email address. Have a great week. 
It's time for the Woke News of the Week. The Woke News of the Week is a wee snapshot of some of the stories that are highly influenced by ideologies out and about in the wider world. Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and owner of X, formerly known as Twitter, has become strongly opposed to the concept of being woke due to his daughter's gender transition. His daughter, Vivian Jenner Wilson, revealed her transgender identity to her aunt when she was 16 years old. She texted her aunt saying, hey, I'm transgender and my name is now Jenner. Don't tell dad. Later on, she legally changed her name and gender and she cut all ties with her famous father. According to a book by Walter Isaacson, who wrote Elon Musk's biography, Musk's right-wing political beliefs were partly triggered by his daughter's transition. He reportedly labelled his daughter a communist and believed her school in California brainwashed her into thinking that wealthy people are evil. Musk blamed the Crossroads School for Arts and Sciences, which his daughter attended, for her change in attitude towards him. He mentioned that the rift with his daughter had been one of the most painful experiences for him, comparable to the loss of his first child. Musk has previously criticised woke schools for his daughter's transition, but this is the first time that he has named the school specifically. Comedian Bill Maher, during an interview on the Joe Rogan experience, has made a comparison between far-left progressives and the Ku Klux Klan, or KKK. He argued that some progressives focus too much on race, which he believes is not in line with true liberalism. Maher emphasised being woke, which involves a strong emphasis on identity and political correctness, is different from being liberal. He stated that liberals aim for a colorblind society where race doesn't play a significant role, a belief held by prominent figures like Martin Luther King. In contrast, Meyer argued that woke individuals prioritize seeing race everywhere, which he likened to the KKK's position. He urged people to differentiate between liberalism and extreme progressivism. Ma has been critical of President Biden and the progressive ideologies, even though he identifies as a liberal himself. He believes that the focus on identity and political correctness can be counterproductive and is concerned about the growing influences of these ideas within the liberal movement. Meanwhile, Jordan Peterson continues to discuss his concerns about freedom of speech in Canada. Peterson is a clinical psychologist facing consequences for his political opinion shared on social media, including the risk of losing his professional licence. He points out that the College of Psychologists of Ontario upheld complaints about his tweets, even though they didn't directly harm anybody. Peterson argues that professional regulatory bodies in Canada have been weaponized by ideological radicals who can submit complaints that disrupt professionals' lives, regardless of their good work or reputation. Even though he appealed the decision, the court still ruled against him, allowing these bodies to impose limits on freedom of speech. He criticises Canada's move towards prioritising group rights over individual rights and the use of the notwithstanding clause, which limits the character of rights and freedoms. Peterson vows to fight for his freedom of speech rights in court and calls for a greater awareness of the erosion of free speech, not only in Canada, but across the Western world. He emphasises that he has the resources to fight, but recognises that many others do not. And finally, Qantas, the Australian airline, has been making headlines recently for various controversial decisions. They announced a big fleet renewal, but faced criticism for supporting Indigenous representation in government and initially imposing an expiration date on COVID-era refunds. 
This situation highlights a trend known as woke capitalism, which is now gaining traction in Australia. Woke capitalism involves companies taking strong political stances on social issues, often aligning with progressive ideals. However, this approach can be unprofitable and polarizing. Many consumers dislike it, and it can alienate potential customers. Additionally, there has been little evidence that diversity training programs actually boost productivity. Employees focused on wokeness might spend more time on social media and workplace conflicts instead of doing their job. This case echoes similar corporate decisions worldwide, like social media companies suppressing certain news stories to align with government agendas or embracing environmentalism to gain favour with eco-friendly administrations. Qantas openly supports Indigenous representation, which aligns with Labour Party politics, but may isolate a significant customer base. Critics argue that what the airline truly needs is competition to drive down high-ticket prices. Ultimately, they question whether virtue signalling is good for business and the general population. What do you think? If you've got any comments at all about the Woke News of the Week or you have a news story to share, text us at 2057 or inbox at Radio. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Thanks for joining me for another dose of counterculture this week. And as I mentioned before, keep that feedback coming. Send your comment to 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. If you want to support the work we do here at RCR, we are funded by the people for the people. You can join our Foundation Members Club or you can simply make a one-off donation. All the details can be found at realitycheck.radio. Peter Williams is here next with more classic music and insightful commentary. But it's time just for one more song from me. After winning the 11th season of American Idol in 2012, this song has since gone on to be the best-selling song in Idol history. It's Philip Phillips with Home, and I'll catch you all next week. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, Reality Check Radio.